The human brain and body are a superb host for universal consciousness. This living form offers many paths for personal consciousness to realize it's the same as universal consciousness. But there could be countless other ways that universal consciousness might be expressed, especially in systems that are sufficiently complex for personal consciousness to become self-reflective. There's no reason, for example, that a suitably constructed robot brain and body couldn't also host a self-aware form of personal consciousness. If that turns out to be the case, then it's a good bet that not only will robots eventually make humans redundant, as Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Stephen Hawking have been warning us, but conscious robots may also be profoundly psychic wizards. That's because, in principle, a robot would have much better control over the psychological and brain-oriented factors, like the hyper-analytical frontal lobes, that seem to be particularly effective in blocking psychic awareness in humans. That is, we've been shaped by evolution to be highly effective at personal and social survival, which means we're exceptionally adept at avoiding predators, outwitting prey, and cooperating with others in our tribe. But we gained those skills at a price. Our brains are very good at making snap judgments, quickly forming stereotypes and responding to our needs here and now. We rarely need to know what's happening elsewhere. So everyday awareness has become a highly refined form of mental myopia, and this is exactly the opposite of the kind of expansive consciousness required to roam throughout the galaxy, peer deep into the past or future, or perform magic. When it's safe to set aside ordinary awareness and we dream, meditate, or take an entheogenic compound, we may momentarily escape the hardwiring that tightly binds us to the mundane present. But a robot mind with more refined control over its states of awareness won't have to worry about being eaten by a tiger. It will be able to skip over eons of evolutionary shaping, so it may quickly come to realize that personal consciousness and universal consciousness are identical. And that in turn suggests that a robot not only will be able to do everything you can do, faster, better, and cheaper, it will also know everything you're thinking and will be able to perform incredibly powerful magic. Levitating robot wizards? Yet another reason to worry about the coming singularity, the day the robots become conscious. Hello my ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the scientifically exhausted duo, <laughs> Jay and Nick. That is the closest I'll ever be to a scientist. <laughs> I read, I tried to read so many pages of results, and it was just so many numbers and so many percentiles and my brain just rejected it just rejected it like a baboon heart but on the show we are going to discuss dissect and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature so settle in buckle up and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of noctivigant
And we're back. What's up, guys? In the attic. No, it's the basement. Don't lie to them. I was hoping that I could manifest a better reality than us being in the basement. And really, I guess the only step up is attic. How How is that a step up? Yeah. It's literally a step upwards. No, it'd be multiple steps upward to physically get to the attic. And also, no, it's not better. Also, my attic is filled with poison. We'd be dead halfway through recording. Yes, and if we also were were in an attic, Nick, Rory and I would be happy and you would be miserable because while basements are the coldest part of a house, an attic is the hottest and stuffiest. True. And again, I come back to breathing all that sweet asbestos. Yeah, I mean, no. Let's let's not and say we didn't. (laughs) And when you're going to try and manifest a better reality, try harder. Okay. Okay, I can do this. I can do this. Picture, picture like ham sandwich. Ham sandwich. How is that better? I don't know. Go upstairs and make a goddamn sandwich. We're recording. I can't make a sandwich. It's not there. like it's live, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, we are here today to talk about magic. Yes. But specifically, we're going to talk about real magic by Dean. Raiden. Ah, yeah. yeah. You guys remember that name? Well, he got mentioned way back in Twin Telepathy. Oh yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah. yeah uh, he's uh, he's a he's a big deal in, the, in terms of the community, the parapsychological community. He's the head scientist for the Institute of Noetic Studies, which, from my understanding, is pretty much the biggest parapsychology lab operating today. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh. I mean, I. I I was um, very impressed with this book. I thought it was very, very well written, but obviously very well researched uh, and, I, I don't know, uh, endlessly hilarious in its own way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Dean Radin is a very quietly hilarious writer. Yeah. There were so many plithy little jabs hidden. Uh, hidden amidst very dull test results. Like, honestly, if you like our sense of humor, I think you'd enjoy this book because um, it's... It it bleeds sarcasm. Yep. This this dude, much like John Mack, has done has done monumental work for this field, mm-hmm. and has and has has humbly walked up to so many review boards and respected journals and been like, "Please, I have groundbreaking information for you." And then they beat him with sticks, and he's like, "What? What is happening?" Yeah. Yeah, and I, I part of me like the sarcasm throughout the book. I did definitely get the vibe of just someone who's just so goddamn tired of that. Well, when you've been doing it for forty fucking years, you know. I mean, I get it, especially when it's like you're doing forty years of research into fringe in quotations in, into fringe topics, topics. That, into topics that most of your colleagues won't even uh, acknowledge might exist. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's wild. Uh and he presents a really interesting case here, really interesting theories. Honestly, uh, I would say this is probably one of the more compelling books I've read in terms of uh, if someone didn't believe in anything anomalous and I could hand them one book, this would be one of the contenders. A- absolutely. I would agree. This is probably, this is the one that, I, I think this is the one that I would hand to somebody and be like, well, you know, you don't believe in, in, in all this. That's fine. But take a take a take take a gander at this here book and tell me what you think afterwards. Because if you're scientifically minded, you can't see, but I put that in quotations. 
Um, I think this book would be very interesting for you. Every time he said the words odd odds against chance, I knew my mind was about to leak out my ears. That, uh, most of the time, yeah. That whole mediumship study about um, about measuring the way that their brains looked, uh, the way their brains lit up when they were looking at mm-hmm. photographs of deceased people versus living people. And it's like there was a response that lit up so quickly they couldn't have made a conscious thought yet, yeah. indicating that some sort of biological process was occurring. It's just, it's like, what the fuck is that? Uh, then that's a great question. Um, I guess it would be what theurgy, <laughs> uh, maybe. I I don't know. Yeah, that that to me was pretty crazy. The fact that we are. Uh... That some there's some evidence to say that mediums are literally biologically hardwired to be able to do that, which actually it, this is not something I didn't think about till right now. That would imply there's an evolutionary reason that developed, because otherwise it wouldn't be there, right? Uh, theoretically, I, I what would, and so there's an evolutionary reason to then communicate with, interact with these maybe uh maybe spirits on the other side or somewhere something of a different frequency i mean i can see why we would want there to be an evolutionary need for that if they're there we'd want to communicate right yeah well i mean mean, think about the fact of uh well not the fact but like the idea that uh beyond that veil of death that's kind of be outside of our normal flow of tiktok time right Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) hey that's a great information source about things that are coming up uh, coming up in the future for you, or secrets about the past, or mm-hmm. warnings about your landscape. Uh, you know, I could easily see maybe go back to Paleolithic times. Maybe certain hunters just kind of had a sense for danger, and it's because they had a whole bunch of ghostly snitches. I mean, and we know <laughs> in in a way um, that those kind of senses seem to to be real. Even in this book, he goes over the the feeling of being stared at. Yeah, and like talking about how or showing evidence that that's a real thing. It's not just a you know weird sense. There's a there's some level of like psych almost innate psychic ability that we all seem to have that scoring above odds against chance at levels that are kind of insane. Even through fucking cameras, you could be you can tell if somebody is staring at you. Yep. Which is wild. Yep. So are we ready to get into it? Yes. All right. Magic is real. At least, it might be, according to our author today. But the magic we are going to discuss is not stage magic, not fantasy, but real magic. But not just the rituals and ceremonies of your favorite pagan faith, but also Psy, like we explored in Twin Telepathy. According to our author, magic falls into three categories. Force of will, no, not the Magic the Gathering card, but the act of intentionally influencing our world through mental influence. It's a good card, though. Oh, fantastic. The second is divination, like tarot cards and scrying. And the third is theurgy, which involves evoking and communicating with spirits. Dean Radin has studied magic for 40 years. Motivated by scientific curiosity and a religious background that he admits makes him more sympathetic to metaphysical ideas. Over these years, he has come up with two conclusions. Quote, First, there's no doubt that science is the most accurate lens on reality that humanity has developed so far. 
what we've collectively discovered about the nature of nature over the last three or four centuries, from the quantum to the cosmological is an awe-inspiring testament to our creativity and imagination. Technology based on that knowledge provide proof that our discoveries are valid. So when considering real magic, it would be foolish to just throw away what we've already learned. But second, Reality viewed through the lens of science is an exceedingly thin slice of the whole shebang. Science is tightly focused on the objective, measurable physical world. That focus excludes the one and only thing you can ever know for sure, your consciousness, that inner spark of sentience that you call me. To Raiden, we will discover a whole new realm of knowledge by looking inward, a truth that, as he sees it, is that there is no paranormal, no supernatural, just elements of nature that we have yet to understand. We could, of course, if we studied it. This body of evidence can be explored through experimental evidence that shows magic exists, and through the lens of an emerging scientific practice that, just like medieval astrology and alchemy evolved into today's astronomy and chemistry, is poised to bring real magic into the scientific realm. To many, the idea of magic being more than Harry Potter and Gandalf the Grey is, frankly, terrifying. They would prefer that, regardless of the evidence, it just didn't. We call these people squares. <laughs> or goats. A prominent British philosopher named A.J. Ayer, who specialized in logical positivism and rejected all forms of the metaphysical, blew the minds, including his own, when after having died and being resuscitated, experienced an NDE, a near-death experience, which he described as consisting of, quote, repeated attempts to cross a river and a red light, exceedingly bright and also very painful, responsible for the government of the universe. Ayer retained his atheism, but declared that the experience had slightly weakened his conviction that death will be the end of me. And according to Raiden, this is an example of theurgy, communion with an outside intelligence, and the existence of NDEs suggest that there are other forms of embodied awareness. He goes on to cite several other examples, one of which we've covered previously about Michael Shermer, a skeptic, who wrote an article in Scientific America about his wife's grandmother's broken radio suddenly working when his wife was thinking about how much she missed her grandfather. Mind you, this same gentleman, only two years later, wrote an article implying that paranormal experiences could not be measured since we haven't proved them yet, even though he wrote an article about... <sighs> Fucking square-ass goats. <laughs> Raiden suggests that maybe he forgot about the event. As Nick and I have reported here, and many others have also reported, that sometimes when you experience an anomalous event, you promptly forget about it. This experience suggests to Raiden that magic exists just below the skin of everyday life and often shows itself to us. But, for reasons psychological and or spiritual, we either ignore them or recoil from them and then forget them afterwards. So what is this magic that we are talking about today? Where did it come from? Well, starting with the etymology, magic comes from the Greek word magos referring to the learned and priestly class. The Persian word magush came before that and means to be able or to have power. Power. Let's start there because power is the driving force of the past, present, and as it's looking now, 
the future. Quote, As an age has passed, many people interested in real magic today are motivated by a desire to wield power, power to get wealth, fame, love, or sex. And many, if not most, in Orthodox religious communities recoil at the idea of spellcasting. They insist that they must be demonic and evil. Like the Monsignor from the last book, they believe that if it is not of their method, their way, that it must be evil, even if, by its nature, prayer is essentially the same thing as spellcasting. Quote, but the way magic is used is completely up to the magician. The power itself, like any fundamental force of the universe, is morally neutral. Atomic fission and fusion are just aspects of the way the physical world works. Questions or morality arise when we use such natural phenomena to create weapons. And, like nuclear power, there is what is called black magic, which is, according to our author, magic that is meant to exploit or harm others. For some, this is seductive, for it allows us to force others to exist in harmony with our own desires. But again, is this any different than how some, mostly evangelicals in my experience, use prayer? Quote, by the way, prayer that intended harm to others are also clear instances of black magic. Far right-wing Christians in the United States are constantly railing against the demonic evils of witchcraft, but at the same time, they pray intensely to influence others. As an example, one such individual announced during the 2016 U.S. presidential debates that he was praying that confusion would cloud Hillary Clinton's mind and that fear would come upon her. Then, tit for tat, ceremonial magicians who were displeased with the outcome of the election circulated a spell to bind Donald Trump and all those who abet him. This type of spell is part of an age-old tradition called defixion's magic. It's intended to bind or constrain an object of the spell. Some would argue that a binding spell is not black magic because it doesn't intend to harm an individual. Rather, it aims to prevent harm or threats caused by that person to come to others. This reasoning illustrates the slippery slope that justifies the use of magic in a gray area, somewhere between black and white. The moral of this story is that black magic, albeit prayer or witchcraft, never ends well. Within the magical worldview, everything is interconnected. Harming others harms the self, seemingly as if by natural law. Like it or not, magic in Psy is a key part of our culture. No, not American culture, human culture. Quote, when you are studying the history and practice of magic, the first thing you discover is that everyone throughout history has been fascinated by this topic. And it seems that half of them have written at least one book about it. The scope and magnitude of the literature are mind-boggling. From Oz to Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter to the millions of articles, videos, and guides for magic online, we are saturated in it. From a scientific perspective, magic provides valuable clues about who we are and what we're capable of. In religion, magic is necessary to support their entire worldview. In our media, we have positive role models in magic, from Dumbledore to Glinda the Good Witch. And these stories are always portrayed as struggles between good and evil, light and dark. And the same can even be said about horror movies, but here the occult is almost always portrayed as malevolent. And Raiden believes that most people would not accept magic, even if it was proven to be real. That they couldn't handle that others could know their secrets, influence their health or their finances. 
This paranoia enforces repression of the idea in its entirety. Yet, religious belief in general requires belief in magic, just magic done in a specific way by specific people. The Catholic Churches, the most magical of these non-magical faiths, Prohibition of magic was rooted in the early church's difficulty in telling divine miracles from other forms of magic. And over the years, magic has been diluted and suppressed like this, not just by the church, but academia. Anthropologists regard magic as so idiotic that it has been erased from most curriculum. This growing abandonment of the mystical and spiritual practices that had prevailed through all of human history to that point has led to what German sociologist and philosopher Max Weber defined as Western society's disenchantment. Some scientists have tried to battle back at the growing number of anthropologists that insist that Sir Edward Burnett Tyler's idea that magic is, quote, one of the most pernicious delusions that ever vexed mankind, but unfortunately have not gained much traction outside of the back and forth inside academic journals. And from actual witch hunts that are still happening as recent as 2014 to scientists still pushing the narrative of magic being nonsense, we are seemingly stuck in the same circle, stuck leaning on our left brain while our right brain is screaming to let magic back in. And this will bring us to our first discussion question. Let's do this. So Dean Radin here has laid out the foundation for why people seek magic and why magic has been suppressed. And the argument could be made that the answer is the same for both, and that being power. And I don't want to harp on why people seek after power. I think through the time on the show, we've screamed about that enough. So rather, I want us to explore the ideas of how we think society could start to let go of this desire for power and let magic return to what it was meant to be and let it be everyone's. That is a tall order. Um... True that. Okay, so that's why I said start to let go of. I mean, I, I so I got kind of I'd have to split this question apart a little bit because when we're talking about power. I'm seeing that word basically coming up two in two places in this conversation. One, the I guess the power to define reality for the majority of people that is currently held by uh, mainstream science. Mm -hmm. uh, and that power, I mean, they're not going to let it go. Of course, they're not going to let it go. But that said, we do see signs of that changing. Uh, mm -hmm. We have more and more researchers who are suggesting there's something to anomalous experiences. We have studies like Raiden's, which have been published in some journals despite efforts to the, uh, keep them out. And we also have, uh, increasingly, in our most bleeding-edge physics, certain uh, spooky effects are starting to get seen that echo magic, which I'm mm -hmm. sure uh, we might be getting at to later in the book. So I, I do see that the power is already slipping a little from their hands. What if that'll keep happening or uh, if a new generation will come in to keep everything hush? We, we, we can't know. But I mean, like most things, I, I tend to hope that, you know, we will grow as a species as people who hold the old ideas die and more people come in with new ideas. And then those people will develop uh, rigid, I shitty ideas of their own that then the next generation will approve upon. And I just got to hope that that will happen. What's funny about that, what you just said, is develop new ideas. And, I mean, but really what we want or what like a lot of the foundation here is saying is to stop 
letting these new ideas control the the conversation to then dilute and eliminate the old ideas because the old ideas are what brought us here. Okay, yeah. When I'm talking about old ideas, I'm not referring to old ideas like, you know, magic esotericism. I I don't know how we're going to get to the point that people can get over their initial uh, kind of gut response to those words even in order to uh, entertain them enough. And uh, outside of rebranding, because, I mean, fa- words have power and we develop a whole complex suite of emotions and biases about words. So maybe we maybe in the future it's not magic. It's um, super science. It's uh, it's quantum nonsense and all of that. Maybe, maybe, but at the end of the day, it's still fundamentally magic. It's still using your mind to influence your reality around you. Now, what I think, though, is the more interesting question is, let's say magic does get accepted back in. How do you, uh, into the mainstream, how do you prevent it then from being used by bad actors or being used by people who want to hoard magic uh, or hoard power? And I'm not sure you can because all through history we've been trying to keep power out of the hands of assholes, and we ha- we're not very good at it. But that said, I think one thing that's, a, that's interesting concerning magic specifically is if it's as ubiquitous as Dean Radin has suggested in this book, uh, it means everyone can do it. And some people are much better at it, but it is a part of the human condition. And in that case, yes, you may have people who are desperately trying to hoard their power, uh, but what they're trying to hoard is fundamentally something that already belongs to all of these, to everyone else who, if they will wish to, can take it back. They can do what they want to counteract bad actors. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating. I think it would be a largely a giant morality test, a final judgment, if you will, of mankind. Are there enough of us who are, uh, wanting to live in a better world and wanting to do good that we're going to end up in a utopia or do the assholes outnumber us truly and we end up living in a new despotic hell. Uh, and I, I, I can't answer that. I don't know which way to go. I really hope that if uh, tomorrow it came out, I was like, magic is real. You can all do it. Here's some handy pamphlets. I mean, all of those things that you just said, they already exist. Well, yeah, they do. I, I just think... The idea isn't so much like that it's proven without a shadow of a doubt, right? That, that, it, that will theoretically come with time. Science is proving, like they've proven everything else, that these things are real. The, I guess, thought is how do we kind of like let... Because regardless of science, regardless of science's... Uh, of proving it being real or not, to some, it's already real, okay? They know without a shadow of a doubt to them that it's real. But right now, if that happened tomorrow, we would destroy the planet. Oh, hands down. So what I think is the more interesting question is not how do we prevent bad actors from doing it because that's never going to happen, but rather how do we help society grow and level up, so to speak, so that we can make sure that magic is less about the desire for power because that power is innate to everyone. So that's more education, right? But rather just letting it be, stop hoarding. How do we make it so that society will stop being so fucking selfish? I mean, I think that a lot lot of it can go down to... uh... 
reducing the barriers to a good and happy life. I, 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 I genuinely do believe that that is part of it because people tend to get more selfish when they're desperate, when they mm-hmm. can't ma- make their rent, when they, they can't eat. And yeah, if you gave them magic tomorrow, they might start hurling hexes at the people they perceive as keeping them down, the people who are actually are keeping them down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that realistically what we're discussing here then is a massive cultural shift to the entire Western world. Uh, Maybe more than the Western world, the whole world. I would say I think it's the whole world, and yeah. I, and that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah, and so what we would need, I mean, really, the only way that happens is uh, people talk about it, and people take it seriously, and we talk to other people about it, and we ha- are willing to, people be, fa- be willing to face ridicule and face backlash and just say, well, this is, this is what I think, and if you're willing to listen to me, I will tell you what I think, and you have to make that choice yourself. I think it's going to come down to, Nine billion personal decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it, that's chaos. And chaos can lead to uh, great, wonderful things. It can also lead to total destruction. And I think the terrifying thing is we won't know where it's going to land until it happens. True. Um, I think really the thing that we have to address there is that because of even before capitalism, we lived primarily in an environment of false scarcity. And so false scarcity has led to us believing that all of life is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. There must be winners and losers. There must be haves and have-nots. And I think that's what gets people so upset about things like this is, again, is there is the assumption that it's like, well, if magic is real... Clearly not everybody has it. And then the next thought for a lot of people probably is automatically, what if I don't have it and other people do and other people use it to hurt me? Mm-hmm. Because have you noticed that Americans are intensely fucking paranoid and assume the worst from everyone literally all the time? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that some, yeah, just like this, this fucking mentality that if somebody is begging for change on the street corner... Clearly, they're secretly a millionaire. And right. it's like, it's, it's like, why? Why do you think people are lying to you for fun? Are you lying to people for fun? Because it seems like you're projecting. Like, I mean, they probably are. It's almost innate to our culture to project a form of, stable, of, of stableness that you don't have. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, even more than that, I mean, you got onto the level of... Uh, individualism that we tend to try to impart on our children it, there is this idea that uh if you ever if everyone is truly only in it for themselves then you're going to assume everyone else is trying to pull one over you right that i think that it's it's the consequence of having an individualistic mindset versus a community centered one yeah it's it's i versus we mhm yeah and and so i think just kind of at a cultural level just trying to trying to heal that wound of of false scarcity kind of that inherent trauma that is baked into so much of of our identity as as Americans and probably more broadly the rest of the world that you need to bite and claw and fight for every single scrap of what you got and if you don't if you stop 
for even a second, someone's going to take it away from you. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to maintain such rigid control over the power structure because, yeah, sure, your wife is shit in the current one, but you've also been brainwashed into believing it will be worse in any other version of the world. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, people throw a tantrum when it's implied to them that it's like some people are psychic because they don't hear, hey, listen, there's this whole phase of reality that we've forgotten about. There's this whole big, beautiful, mysterious thing. All they hear is, my sister got something I don't. Right. Like, because they, I, I maybe it's just because I'm in a weird mood today, but I, I feel like for some people, at least, that's got to be part of it. It's just this, is this envy and this terror of losing what they do have and just kind of... It's for, societal FOMO. Yeah. No, I think it is. I think it's societal FOMO. And weirdly, I think that ties into other things like the backlash to the new queer rights movement and mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter and things like that is because a lot of people that are coasting in kind of a middling existence are constantly on the lookout for the new special thing that someone else has that they don't get. Right. So they freak out about disability accommodations and pronouns on hospital forms. Right. And magic. Yeah. Because they don't see it as this beautiful new thing. They see it as this thing they don't have. Or because it's uh, opposed to their belief system, they're like, no, this can't be real because if it was real, I'd have it because it's not inside their worldview, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's like this thought popped into my head as you were speaking. In that world, if, it was, if magic was accepted and we knew it was tied to Psy and some people were really strong and some weren't, I mean, just like you're saying, you know, immediately there would be people whose whole identity would be around believing themselves the victim because they don't have it. I, I would give it maybe five minutes before some there'd be a new Reddit community for Psy Cells. Yeah. I can't get laid because I'm not psychic. Yeah. No, you're right. A hundred percent because it is uh, seemingly in like human nature to if I'm not the most powerful or I'm not the most of whatever this thing is or I'm not this exact thing, then therefore nobody should be able to can or it's this thing that's working against me. Well, I mean, it, I think it's also it's, you know, like I got, you uh, mentioned, uh, for example, queer rights and things like that. Well, I, the backlash I've seen to gay pride events is like, well, why can't I have a straight pride event? Am I? My thought is always that was always allowed. Like yeah. you're, you absolutely can. And I, I think there's this kind of uh, thought of if I'm not doing it, nobody else should. And if I can't do it, anyone else who does it is innately because again, we can all, the individualistic mindset means we only perceive the world through our own eyes. I must assume they're somehow doing that intentionally. How dare my brother eat his Wheaties and grow four inches taller than me? <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think just I think just healing that that weird trauma might uh, might solve not just this problem, but several. Yeah, no, I, I agree with what you guys are saying. Um, and this is obviously not a question that's ever going to be uh, answered in our lifetime. But like, I think that we have. I mean, if it the... was the 2030s are going to be wild. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that we have the opportunity as a society right now, especially with this mainstream push of things like UFOs and you know uh, what whatever else that we're we have that we're in kind of a unique position to lay the fra- the framework the foundation to kind of bring magic back you know there it's becoming more and more acceptable in modern society to be a practice like a magical practitioner um so things like this book could if scientific gatekeepers would stop uh gatekeeping actually help elevate society unfortunately there are still too many assholes for lack of a better word who aren't interested in even looking at the data you know they're just going to stonewall it because magic isn't real end of conversation you know and that's disappointing to me and i don't know what else to say about it other than it's disappointing to me Okay, world, what we're saying is we're not mad. We're just very disappointed. That's right. And as as your pseudo-parents in this <laughs> paraphilic relationship, you should, uh, you should change. I'm not sure I like the word paraphilic. And isn't that a para- parasocial relationship? Parasocial. That's what, that's what I was going for. Parasocial relationship. That was a Freudian slip. Probably. Yeah. Uh, paraphilia uh, refers to um, atypical sexual attractions or a uh, sexual dysfunction that's right. occurring on a psychological level. Like uh, pedophilia. Pedophilia, uh, bestiality, things like that. Those are paraphilia. A Homelander's thing with the milk. That's a that's a paraphilia. That's what you're thinking of. And okay. That's, that's a boy's reference for anybody who doesn't watch that show. I apologize for the mix-up, but as you know, I got the mad cow. <laughs> Let's go on to section two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> before Nick dies of an obscure brain disease. According to Raiden, there are two major categories of magic, supernatural and natural. At some point, everything has been considered supernatural in one form or another. That is, until we started figuring out the more predictable parts of nature, such as celestial movements, medicinal are qualities of certain herbs and plants, and other such developments. Quote, Supernatural magic was eventually adopted by religion, and natural magic split into two branches, the exoteric, or outer and physical world, and the esoteric, the inner and mental world. The exoteric branch evolved into today's science. The esoteric branch is where magic has been hiding. Exoteric science helped us develop technology to control natural forces like electricity and see normally invisible things like atoms. This expanded our worldview and radically changed life on Earth. And because of that, we have become hyper-focused on the outside physical world. Esoteric magic has also evolved, using its own methods and theories, and has become something vastly different from the basis of today's technology. In order to understand how we got to where we are in regards of magic, we must understand where we came from. And Raiden does this in a detailed but brief rundown of the history of magic, much of which we explored in Secret Teachers of the Western World and Occult America. But, as a bit of a refresher, I will detail some of what was explored as it may be relevant to our discussions later. Starting in the prehistoric times, Raiden explores the idea posited by religious scholar Houston Smith, suggesting that language may have been first developed as a result of experimentation with psychedelics 
which amplified the creative imagination, and that those that were the most adept at navigating these altered states eventually became the first shamans and wizards. And as people moved out of tribes and began to form settlements, towns, cities, and empires, they gained the luxury of time, time that they then spent considering the greater spiritual and religious mysteries of their world. This occurred in what German-Swiss philosopher Karl Jaspers labeled as the Axial Age, from around 800 to 200 BCE. During this time, mystery schools like the Aleutian Mystery School thrived. Plato was a member of this school before it closed in 392 CE, and his experiences there helped him devise his idea of a higher realm of forms. He used the allegory of prisoners in a cave, chained to a wall, who could only see the shadows cast by an unseen fire behind them. When released, they ventured outside the cave and saw the real world in its true, vibrant colors, no mere shadows. The prisoner who saw this, though, was unable to convince the others that the real world even existed. To them, all was still shadows. This, Plato argued, was the difference between our physical world and the deeper reality revealed to him by the mysteries. And understanding true reality took gnosis. Gnosis, as we have discussed before, can be understood as a deep intuition which goes beyond the normal means of knowing. It is knowledge from the heart. It is the consciousness of something more without the need for rationalization. Sprouting from Plato's theories, we get Neoplatonism. This idea, started by Egyptian philosopher Platonius, posited the experience of a deep interconnection between all things, including between mental and physical phenomenon. To the conscious ego, these two seem separate, but to a mind in a state of gnosis, one can see the apparent separation dissolve. Rating calls this the state of universal consciousness. In the Dark Ages, we see the church begin to clamp down on magic, leading to the Inquisition, which had many alleged witches, warlocks, and other magic users tortured or put to death, including the genocide of 20,000 Cathars for their Gnostic beliefs on July 22, 1209. And when asked how to tell the difference between the believers and non, quote, kill them all, let God sort them out. And that shit still makes me shiver. Birth of a trope. Mm-hmm. When time slowly creeped forward and into the Renaissance, we saw more and more translation of ancient texts were being done. Then, with the invention of the printing press, these new translations were being spread out further and wider than ever before. This, quote, resulted in an explosion of renewed ideas and relief from the stagnation of the previous thousand years. This in turn stimulated an upheaval in religion, politics, economics, and scholarship, and it established the basic structures and Western cultural beliefs that would come to define the modern world. Martin Luther and others began to question the church. Hermeticism was rediscovered, and with it, the idea that reality consists of a single universal consciousness. This can appear in two aspects. One form is a manifested primordial energy, known in alchemy as the one thing. The other is the non-manifested energy known as the one mind. The one mind and one thing are not separate. They only seem that way to us without the aid of the universal consciousness. True reality, according to Hermeticism, is not comprehensible at our level of consciousness. Reality is psychophysical, both physical and mental, at the same time. And naturally, the church didn't like this idea. So they forced Hermeticism underground, 
until it was rediscovered yet again in the 15th century by Prince Comio dei Medici of Florence, Italy. He commissioned Marsilio Ficinio, head of the Florentine Academy, to translate a set of 17 ancient manuscripts. These became the Corpus Hermeticum. One of Ficino's students, Count Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, I apologize for the name butchering today, but here we are, added aspects of the Jewish Kabbalah to Hermeticism and proposed that Christianity was contained within pagan beliefs and was part of the same secret tradition of Kabbalah that Moses received on a second trip up Mount Sinai. Okay. Between this and his other works, he helped inspire other great thinkers like John Dee, Giordano Bruno, who argued that the universe contained infinite worlds, all inhabited by life. And that was, of course, a heretical idea that the church murdered him for. And then the legendary Paracelsus, founder of homopathy and pioneer of wound surgery. Hate to see what they do to Gene Roddenberry. (laughs) From here, Raiden talks about the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. He even goes into Emanuel Swedenberg, Franz Anton Mesmer, Quimby, Blavatsky and Olcott, Crowley, and more, even if just briefly. All of these people we have covered or talked about in greater detail in previous episodes, so I won't go over it again here, but you can always check out those episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Listen to our show. I think that was the first ad we've ever had. Yeah, and it was for ourselves. (laughs) But what about using magic? How does it work? Quote, The essence of magic boils down to the application of two ordinary mental skills, attention and intention. The strength of the magical outcome is modulated by four factors, belief, imagination, emotion, and clarity. That's basically it. The ceremonial robes, somber setting, black candles, secret handshakes, chanting in ancient languages, sex and drugs, all are good theater which may help in withdrawing the mind from the distractions of the mundane world, but ultimately, they're unnecessary. According to Raiden, the most important step to developing your magical skills is to learn how to enter into a state of gnosis, typically done through meditation, and then empty your mind. And as Nick and Jay, okay, and me, are painfully aware of, it really isn't that easy. God, no. The second that you close your eyes and try to clear your mind, your mind fights and begins to wander, forcing you to restart over and over each time your mind chases the next thing that enters into your brain. But just like any discipline, it takes practice. Your mind will wander, yes, but the more you do it and train your brain, the longer it will be before your mind begins to wander, and eventually you will achieve that state of awareness that the personal self and the universal self are one. Or at least, we hope to. Magic is subtle for most of us. And practicing potent magic is a refined skill that requires talent and disciplined practice. Force of will magic involves the application of attention, intention, imagination, and belief. One example of this is written magic where you write a goal on a piece of paper as a focus for your attention. Imagine the paper as the universal consciousness and the ink as your subconsciousness. And with a clear goal in mind and true belief that it can be achieved, review that goal daily, but not dwelling on it. Allow it to meld into your unconscious. Don't share the goal, as that may add doubt. And when it works, 
Acknowledge that it worked with gratitude and accept the outcome, even if it's not exactly what you wanted. And sigil magic is similar to written magic, except it uses an intentionally designed symbol instead of a written goal. Quote, after the sigil is created, the magician traditionally charges and then releases it. The charging is meant to forcefully concentrate emotion, intention, and belief on the goal. The releasing is intended to push the goal from the conscious mind into the unconscious. Raiden then goes on to tell us about the power of this magic by four synchronicities that he experienced. In a nutshell, he moved his Psy Research Lab into an office building outside of Silicon Valley. He noticed when he was moving stuff in that one of the neighbors was a company called PsyQuest Incorporated. He assumed, at the time, that the name was a coincidence as there was not many Psy Research companies that he didn't know of. A month later, he noticed that the sign on the door indicated that they were, in fact, a research lab. When he went to check it out, nobody was there. But when he did eventually meet somebody, it was a man named John Kay, the president of PsyQuest, who was specifically engaged in magic to try and manifest Dean Raiden. Crazier yet, Dean had been doing a bit of his own magic, visualizing the lab that he wished to build on his own. And it turns out, all of the equipment and the same setup was in the PsyQuest lab right next to Raiden's office wall. Which is wild. And divination magic, which, at least in the context for this book, is magic that involves, quote, perceiving beyond the ordinary boundaries of space and time. In the early 19th century, this ability was called clairvoyance, French for clear seeing. Later, it was called extrasensory perception, or ESP. Today, the euphemism remote viewing is more commonly used. Theurgy is magic that involves communication with spirits. According to Raiden, the science is still out about if such entities are real, some believe them merely psychological or separate expressions of psi power. We lack the methods to detect them, at least for right now, and we also don't have the tools to differentiate between a discarnate spirit and a manifestation of psi. Quote, as far as the practice of theurgy goes, the act of evoking spirits, it should not be taken lightly that ghosts and demons are indispensable plot points in horror films, or that skeptics laugh at the notion of disembodied spirits even if that laugh is nervous and one eye twitches uncontrollably. And that's going to bring us to discussion question number two. All right. In Raiden's worldview, the jury is still out on whether or not spirits, ghosts, and the like are real, as some believe that they could also be a manifestation of size, I just said. And this is similar to what we've talked about and how we classify a poltergeist. So I can see the arguments being made for ghosts and spirits as they are typically seen, thinking haunted houses and graveyards and whatnot. But what about the rest of the phenomenon? Could Bigfoot, aliens, Mothman, the rest of this, also just be manifestations of psi energy? Why or why not? Um... I think that a good portion of the supernatural and paranormal creatures that we encounter are manifestations of psi, not of individual psi, but kind of like the collective that there's these there are these things that sort of crawl out from our cultural consciousness, things that are kind of like, you know, 
willed to life through belief by our uh that that phrase that Einstein used that I fucking love, spooky action at a distance. Mm-hmm. If it's like just our our mental exertion, our our deep, deep belief that these things are real, even if we don't consciously believe that, just kind of forces these particles together in the same shape. Like, quite honestly, um, particularly when it comes to Streber's visitors, I-, I think that that may just be true in the majority of cases of because again like with with Streber's visitors that whole thing about this weird productive torment that they're inflicting on him and their constant insistence that no we we have the right to do this that feel that felt to me very much like okay this is a this is a self-generated journey and these are the creatures that were conjured up to perform this task because he couldn't do it himself internally so he had to create these external representations of what needed to be done in order to heal his soul. And so, so yeah, I think with a good portion of supernatural entities, it it almost makes more sense that they're generated from Psy rather than them springing spontaneously via mechanical evolution. Mm-hmm. I, I you you and me are on a very similar wavelength today, Jay. <laughs> I, so I, I mean I, I like that idea. I think uh kind of taking a step further and the, I, ret- and returning to uh, a a central uh pivot point that we have often circled around on this show, which is are we living in a materialist universe or are we living in a consciousness universe? And if it's the latter, really thinking through that, then well, personal consciousness is no different from universal consciousness. It is a part of the whole. And the same would be said about anything that experiences consciousness. So under that conception, um, then of course they are part of Psy because everything is. We would be manifestations of Psy. Any aggregate of consciousness is a manifestation of Psy and the cause of Psy. Now, again, going back to the, uh, the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. We are creating the world around us, and because we've created the world, we exist in it. And because we exist in it, we create the world around us. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so I would see that in that, in that conception, everything is. It, it's not about aliens and Bigfoot and Mothman. It's about even this table that's in front of me. It's my own hands. It's my cat. It's Jay's glasses. Uh, every single thing is just as miraculous as a 10-foot-tall Mothman. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and if we d- live in a materialist universe, but there is Psy, then maybe. Uh, I, could, I know I've suggested before on the show that maybe the anomalous are akin to dreams that escape into this side of reality. Uh, and I think that that could hold because there is that, very, that Oz effect that we talked about with Joshua Cutchin's book, the very uh, dreamlike state that mm-hmm. witnesses are often put into when they're having these encounters. Which, to me, sounds like gnosis. It, yeah, absolutely could be. Uh, and, and kind of going back to how everything could be connected, I mean, how many times have we encountered stories where the encounter with the anomalous, even if it was terrifying, was a spiritually transformative moment in that person's life? It's it's so common. It's I'm tired of writing it in the in the summaries. Yeah, 
No, no, I, I mean, I feel you. Especially if you look at, like, say, okay, people who are abducted by aliens, people who see Bigfoot, people who uh, have an encounter with a ghost, very often uh, their response to those experiences are the same, regardless of what they experience. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, they become more mindful. They might, uh, yep. many of them uh, become vegetarian. Many of them try to start living a more thoughtful life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so maybe that's what those things are, is that's the universal unconscious kind of going like, eh, this part of me is messing up here. Let's uh, give it a kick in the ass. And I, I, I could get behind that. That'd be cool. <laughs> because then we're doing it to ourselves. Again, we have the right to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And under that conception, of course they do. They're us. They, yeah. they, they ha- yeah. It's just like they have the right to jerk off or clip their toenails. It's, it, it is what it is. It's yeah. our reality. To the toenail, it's torture. But to me, it's grooming. Yeah. And in that scenario that, that, you, that, you, in that scenario you were describing, they're essentially the body's immune system that's coming to correct a problem. Because if a universe is consciousness generated... Mental illness is the equivalent to a rapidly spreading cancer. Oh, my God. I just thought, like, what if the reason all the aliens are so, uh, the, the UFO occupants, the euphonauts, if you will, why they're <laughs> so focused on Earth and why they seem to have such a concern for us is it's like, we are a tumor. And right now they're trying to figure out, is this tumor going to turn malignant? And as soon as we start setting up colonies on other planets, they're going to be like, all right, let's get the chemo in here. <laughs> they're just trying to they're just trying to do anything they can they're just trying extreme therapy after extreme therapy to just heal the wounds that are compounding upon each other on this planet yeah at least i i, I mean i hope we're not a tumor i hope there's some there's enough good in humanity that we're a net positive in the universe i i, I struggle to make the argument sometimes but we, yeah we are we are fragile creatures that are very young in our societal evolution, if you actually look at it, who have become the victims of systems that we set up before we could fully grasp the consequences that are now being run by people that run the gambit of actively malicious to simply not knowing any better. So no, I I don't think we're a, I don't think we're a tumor. I think we're I think we're sad and I think we're traumatized. Mm-hmm. And hope, and I would, I choose to believe that the universal consciousness understands that. And again, it these would, encounters, us. yeah, exactly. The these encounters that we're having, again, it's it's extreme therapy after extreme therapy because you're trying to heal individuals in order to heal the world to therefore, you know, heal the universe. So, yeah, no. If if we if we were if we were a tumor, we would have been cut out. We are. This is the thing that I will never stop asserting. Each individual human has the inherent right to exist. So therefore, as a species, we have the inherent right to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I I agree with what you guys were saying here. I, I, when I was thinking about this question myself, I was like, I was like, in like I can see the argument being made, no, you know, no Bigfoot, aliens, Mothman aren't just manifestations of psi energy and all that. Of course, I could see that argument, especially if you think flesh and blood and all this other stuff, right? Yeah. But regardless of all the uh, very obvious to me, very obvious to me, uh, uh, like counterpoints to flesh and blood, nuts and bolts, whatever you want to call it, 
I think in a roundabout way that the psi, uh, that this could be manifestation of psi energy. So like if the universal consciousness is the driving force behind reality, as has been posited, and we cannot see the whole reality, at least not without the aid of the universe itself, then maybe things like the aliens, Bigfoot, that these are specifically psi energy manifesting from, like Jay was saying, from the universal consciousness. Like if the universal consciousness is the paper and our thoughts, goals, and intentions are the ink, when enough of us write the same thing, maybe it's manifested. And as we evolve and change, how it presents itself evolves and changes to a small degree. So we see less flying ships and more saucers because that's the direction that, this is, that society is going. Almost like the phenomenon is mirroring pop culture. You know, I, you know what, what would be a fascinating experiment that we would need billions of dollars in global influence to do? It would be try pumping out, say, uh, try pumping out novels, screenplays, television shows, movies, in every market you can in which you uh, present that Bigfoot has a glowing head. And, and then see how long it takes for there to be sightings of a Bigfoot with a glowing head or or posit that, yeah, all UFOs. Nope, they're not saucers. They're giant flying dildos. And just see how long it takes. It doesn't take billions of dollars and um, tons and tons of books to create an egregore, which is essentially what you just said. True. Or to warp something like that, because um, I don't think the creators of Slenderman made any money. All right, so we just need to go viral. Exactly. That's literally exactly what I was going to say. We just need to go viral. Good news. That's really easy, and there's a, there's a set way to do it. I mean, if you Google how to go viral, people will tell you that there is. They're wrong. That, <laughs> it, that, that it is not that easy. I've never gone viral. I've been trying for a long time. Yeah, I know. Uh, the good news, though, I got, I got the results back from your doctor, and uh, you're going to uh, be real happy. Yay. You're viral. <laughs> I know. You have to go into quarantine. Uh, hey, no work. Yay. <laughs> oh, no, we're gonna you're going to quarantine at your desk. Oh. What? How? Uh, they're going to chain Rory to it. Do you, no. th you think that's not true? No. No. I can't. No. The dog will be sad. <laughs> the dog will be very sad, so this isn't happening. You and Buffy will just sleep on a rollaway cot under their desk. That's not happening. I won't go in that building. It smells boring. I... Yeah. <laughs> oh, like a kicked puppy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm moving on now. <laughs> In this next section, we are going to cover the scientific evidence that Dean Radin presents. This is far and away the largest chapter of the book and, as usual, means that a lot got left out. So I'm going to do my level best, as Nick says to paint the picture that Raiden is painting by using some of the most impactful experiments and analysis that was used in this book. And I know we say this a lot, but I truly mean this when I say that if you like this kind of stuff, go out and buy this book so that you can read all of the evidence that he presents because it is honestly worth it. It's 220 pages. I promise you, you can do it. Also, it is a very quick read. Yeah, it yeah. Is, it's very quick. And an eight and a half hour long audiobook totally worth reading. The narrator is great. Most of the scientific evidence that we have for magic is through thousands of different experiments and articles published in peer-reviewed journals, 
most often of which is less testing magical concepts and more investigating the Psy phenomenon. As one can imagine, Psy is still fringe, left out of the mainstream consciousness by diehard skeptics who believe, regardless of evidence, that Psy is not and cannot be real. In science, there are six classifications of experiments in the Psy parapsychology world that have overall positive evidence, that being telepathy, primarily through the Gansfield experiments, remote viewing through wide testing and all of the government programs, presentment, a technique for measuring unconscious physiological reactions to future events, implicit precognition, tests of future influences on present time behavior, and then random number generators, RNGs, that test if mental intention impacts numbers generated by such systems. And then the Global Consciousness Project, which uses mostly RNGs themselves, but they are testing if world events impact consciousness in such a way as to cause these RNGs to fall into sync or show common responses when they normally wouldn't. And these tests have all, in one form or another, exceeded what's called the Six Sigma threshold. Essentially, this is a statistical analysis where, after careful consideration of all known experiments investigating the same topic, have achieved odds against chance of over 1 billion to 1. Which is insane, if you didn't know. I mean, for what, what odds against chance means is basically... That is the odds that the results they got could be chalked down to just luck or a fluke. Like if you flip a coin, it's 50-50. Yep. Raiden doesn't go into detail of the Six Sigma experiments, as those are detailed highly in other books and articles. Instead, we're going to look at some experiments that are headed in the direction of Six Sigma, those that are beyond the realm of the known, what some might call magic. Adrian Kent is a professor of quantum physics at the University of Cambridge. He proposed that it was indeed possible and may be proven that consciousness has a direct effect on quantum particles. Beginning in 2008, Radin and his colleagues began a series of experiments into this quantum observer effects, using different optical systems in a double-slit style experiment. Now, four of these studies used beam lasers to produce the photons, and one used a device that produced one photon at a time. They even tested if the behavior was replicable if it was observed at a distance, viewing the experiment via the internet, which they found that distance, no matter how great, did in fact change the results. Their studies produced positive results with odds against chance ranging from 27,000 to 1 to 17,000 trillion to 1. Just a better range. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. In another experiment, Raiden and his team wanted to see if there was anything behind this religious idea of blessing food. Can it prevent foodborne illness? Does it have any impact at all? To do this, Raiden and his team conducted a series of double-blind experiments to see if a blessing on chocolate would elevate the mood of those who ate it more than chocolate that wasn't blessed since they couldn't do that by giving people foodborne illnesses because that's typically frowned upon in polite society. They had 60 participants in this study that were split into four groups balanced by age, gender, and chocolate consumption. The groups filled out personality surveys before eating, then each evening for the next seven days, 
after they'd eaten the chocolate. The blessings were performed by three different methods. Senior Buddhist monks, an electronic device that was, quote, imprinted by six experienced meditators, and then a Mongolian shaman. And then, of course, one group was given unblessed chocolate because we need that scientific control. The study found that by day three, those eating blessed chocolate experienced greater mood change than the control group. This improvement was much stronger in those who did not eat chocolate normally. Now, what does this mean? Well, to skeptics, it means that Raiden somehow, regardless of using the golden double-blind standard, still had flaws in his experiment. But really, what could it mean? That maybe intention and consciousness can, in fact, impact the physical world. In a similar experiment, Professor Yong Zhong Xia in Taiwan ran an experiment to see if blessed water impacted the growth of seeds. Using a locally bought bottled water and a blessing from Master Lu Chang, a respected monk and director of the Bliss and Wisdom Foundation, and two fellow monks. They did this experiment four times and found with odds against chance of 38 trillion to one that the stem length of the flowers was shorter for the blessed plants. This shorter stem, for those like me that are not botanists, is a good thing. It's associated with improved seed growth. And they also found that it increases in anthocyan and chlorophyll with odds against chance of 33,000 to 1 and 20 to 1. These experiments show that force of will can have an impact both on us and our surroundings. And if that is the case with these blessings, what about something more akin to the power of positive thinking? Can setting future goals in the ways laid out in magic have an actual impact? Well, Raiden and his team set out to find out just that. Using a program that they designed with an RNG, they had participants sit behind a computer and press a button while maintaining the intention to hear an audio clip. Once the button is hit, you'll either hear a clip, one of hundreds, or a short click. The goal being to never hear the click. One participant would do this 100 times. Now, behind the scenes, they had the program simulating the movement of a pitched baseball that would deviate either left or right. The RNG would select 1 or 0, 1 would deviate to the left, and 0 to the right. Now, before having anyone take this test, they had the program run thousands of trials and found that the ball deviated left as often as it did right, which makes sense with 50 to 50 odds. What they found in the experiment, through some dense text by Mr. Raiden, was that intention did have an impact on the results with odds against chance of 1,000 to 1, essentially shifting the odds from 50-50 to 56-44. Young Zhang Xia, working with Raiden this time around, sought to see if blessed tea, like the chocolate, would impact mood more than non-blessed tea. They tested this on two levels, both of them double-blind. First, some participants believed that they were drinking blessed tea when they were not, and second, were given blessed tea, but they were not told that it was blessed. And they recruited 221 participants that were given personality questionnaires to fill out each night for a week, and at the end were asked if they believed the tea was blessed or not. This blessing was done by the same monks as the seed experiment that was mentioned before. 
The results here were checked at two levels of assistance, neither of which knew who drank the blessed tea. What they found is among those who believed that they were drinking the blessed tea showed markedly better results than those that were given the placebo, with odds against chance of 50 to 1. Uh, those who did not believe that they had blessed tea showed literally no mood differences. And what does this show? Quote, What this showed is consistent with the idea that belief modulates magic efficacy. The placebo-controlled comparison indicated that the blessing modestly improved people's mood who drank the treated tea. The nocebo-controlled comparison showed no effect, and the placebo-enhanced comparison demonstrated that the effect of the blessing was strongly modulated by what the participants believed. And from here, Raiden goes on to talk about the different experiments for divination, psi, the law of correspondences, which is that inner and outer experiences, mind and matter, intermingle and interact, including that feeling of being stared at, voodoo, and theurgy, but specifically with mediums. Some of these topics we've talked about in depth, especially like mediums. So for our last case study, so to speak, we'll look at divination, if for no other reason than I like it. Quote, Divination is often imagined to reveal the absolute future, as though the future were fixed or fated to unfold in a predetermined way. But the nature of the future isn't all that clear, nor is it obvious what precognition sees. We usually behave as though we have free will, but maybe we really have an unalterable destinies and free will is just an illusion. This raises the question, does precognition perceive the actual future, the one that must occur, or does it perceive a probable future, a future that might occur? And how can we tell which is the better explanation? And Raiden set out to prove this by creating an experiment modeled after the 5 ESP card test popularized by J.B. Ryan. You know, Zenner cards and shit. And shit. That's right. This book made me so nostalgic for twin telepathy. It's like every other chapter, it's like, hey, I know this guy. <laughs> in Raiden's experiment, the user is shown five blank cards. The goal is to click on the card the user thinks the system will randomly select. The assumption here that the computer will randomly select a card from the possible cards. But Raiden had a hidden secret in this test. Before the cards were displayed, the computer chooses one and assigns a bias to it. The bias increases the chance that the card will be chosen, sometimes as little as 5% and sometimes as much as 100%. The user then selects the card that they think the system will pick. The computer then selects a card incorporating the bias metric into the odds. Quote, After collecting some 80 million trials with this hidden feature, we tested to see whether precognition trends to see the actual or probable future, a.k.a. will it pick the card that is actually chosen or just the one that is heavily favored because of the bias metric. The results, in odds against chance of 40 to 1, is that precognition accuracy tends to pick up the probability of a future target rather than the actuality. If we remove the center card, which was an outlier by being far and away the most commonly selected card, the odds move from 40 to 1 to 10,000 to 1. And if this kind of energy can impact us on an individual level, can this be measured or felt by others? Would massive energy-charged moments cause a disturbance in the force? Well, 
The global RNG tests were designed to test literally this kind of theory. And in the 2016 presidential election, specifically the first two debates, they'd caused disturbances in their testing with odds against chance of 330 to 1. So, on the day of the election itself, easily one of the most watched elections in history, only outdone in turnout by the 2020 election, they tested using 32 quantum noise generators that they had constructed to be completely off the grid, and then recorded the noise from each one at a rate of 1,000 samples a second. They ran them all starting from one day before the election and through the four days that followed. The device's outputs should have not been anything like each other, but they found that in the peak hours of November 9th, there was several minute-long spikes where they fell closer into sync. The odds against chance of this spike happening at the exact moment is 226 million to 1. They noticed that the different devices peaked at the exact same time, regardless of their position, and they moved as one. Quote, In the context of magic, what this and other field consciousness studies suggest is that rituals designed to draw and focus the attention of a group may accomplish more than simply produce a psychological sense of group coherence. They may also, as the magical traditions suggest, literally distort the fabric of reality. And with that, we'll move into our third discussion question. So with all of this in mind, the evidence here suggests that belief, force of will, and our own energy have a larger impact on the world than the scientific community is leading anyone to believe, but is literally what others in the occult world have been saying for years. So to you, what is the larger impact of things like the blessed tea, chocolate, or any of these other experiments by becoming more well-known? Do you think that there's a chance that people would abuse this? And do you think that science falling in line with mysticism would take away from some of the spiritual aspects of practicing these things? Uh, so there's a lot there. Yes, um, there is. Uh, I apologize, I guess. I mean, I would come to the, I would argue that uh, we already have the answers to these on a small scale. I mean, anyone who goes to a psychic fair, a paranormal con, uh, any of those uh, kind of fringe community gatherings, yeah, I mean, they're great. You're going to meet a lot of cool people, but and there is awesome stuff in the vendor room, but, but take a look around there. You'll see people selling charms. You'll see people selling uh, blessed oils. You'll see people selling crystals that have been blessed by their particular tradition. There's already a, a cottage industry around this. The difference is be if, if, if these studies got accepted uh, by the mainstream, it would become a global industry. And it's not so much is there a chance it would be abused. It will be abused. Uh, I would see blessed becoming a new buzzword, much like organic is now. Uh, and for those who don't know, there is basically no uh, rules about what you can call organic and not. You can just do it. You can just put it on any food you want. Uh, but that said, I, I would see there being upcharges in fancy grocery stores for blessed fruit and blessed kombucha. Uh, I, I think that would absolutely happen, especially because if people are going to buy it, why wouldn't they do it? Uh, in the, mo the modern market, I mean, the modern world, uh, it, it, it incentivizes turning, a, uh, turning anything into a profit machine. 
So, of course, this, like anything else, would fall victim to that. Um, and regarding the last part of that, do you think science falling in line with mysticism would take away some of the spiritual aspects of practicing these things? I mean, uh, going back to the book by Jack Preston King, uh, Could All Religions Be True? Absolutely to a point. Uh, because there would be people who was like, well, I only drink blessed tea, and I only drive a, bre- a blessed Prius, and I only live on blessed real estate. Uh, but that is largely more of a lifestyle choice. It's like people doing yoga without the sense of the spiritual realities behind it. Uh, th- but magic itself, to me at least, is always going to be, no matter how much you study it, no matter how much you, uh, you take notes about how, how, when it is effective and how it is effective, it is fundamentally a subjective experience. And I don't know if it can be divorced from that. Uh, and so, because when the person is doing magic, how they enter gnosis, how they uh, direct their will, how they get those thoughts in their head to shut the fuck up, it, that's all going to be up to them. That's going to be their personal journey, their personal, uh, their personal struggle. Unless, of course, there is some fancy device we build that's like, hey, turn on this, this special helmet and it'll shut your thoughts off and you'll enter gnosis immediately. And if that happens, I'm going to walk into the sea because I don't understand that world. So the point of a lot of these experiments is proof that these things exist without practice. I mean, sure, yes. Like, I, especially look at like the the use of the RNGs inside of the uh, with the cards in the divination experiment. They proved with odds of you know upwards of I think it was like forty to one or uh, yeah forty to one. With that, which isn't phenomenal odds, but still odds of uh, against chance above what would be predicted, uh, that they could predict what the card was going to be using with or without the bias, and then ten thousand to one when removing the outlier, regardless of the individual's personal practice. So, if science said you can tell the future regardless of whether or not you practice, as proven by these scientific studies. That is literally taking out the spiritual aspect of it and just saying you can do this thing. It's the power of positive thinking without, all of the, without the new thought all over again, repeatedly over and over again. So I guess the real meat behind the question here is if they do prove this like they have and people get on board with it, what happens to the actual spiritual side because the the greater meaning of why of all of this would be gone it would be lost see i i think the 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 effects we're talking about in these studies in terms of your everyday life are fairly minimal i mean yes you might know hey sometimes my intuitions will actually be me thinking the future but i i still would think i mean in this again this could just be wishful thinking I still would think that there would be people who would say, well, that's something I wish to develop. And even if they're doing it outside of a spiritual framework, I would still see it as a spiritual experience. Because ultimately, to me, the spiritual experience is about uh, communion between the self and the universe, which may also be the self. But you've also just said yourself that there are already practices in place that people profit off of that that have sucked out the spiritual side of these things in order to just reap the benefits. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking, yoga I, and... I'm, I'm talking about the difference between how it will be handled globally on a cultural level versus I don't think it will get rid of the subjective personal experience. 
I think that that's part of human nature to to do that seeking and to uh, commit to that kind of growth. And certain things will work for people, some people more than others. Uh, and because of that, I don't think you're going to get rid of it wholesale. Spirituality is always going to be there. We've done it for the last two hundred thousand years. I don't see it going away. No, I, I think I I don't think spiritualism will ever go away. But uh, my fear, I guess, of people just saying you can do these things regardless of anything else is you're going to get a ton of uh, what we are already seeing within the magical community of just people saying things like, I don't need to have any kind of guiding practice or this, that, and you don't, right? You don't need to have, follow any kind of structure. Um, but you still have to seek to be better. You can't just go and do this shit and then, I don't know, reap all the benefits without actually putting in the work, which is what, unfortunately, a lot of what some people, I, I would say a lot of what some people would look at is that they would be able to then design ways like the power of positive thinking and new thought of reaping benefits without having to put in the work. That's all. I was just, I, I think that there's the chance that that would happen, especially in capitalistic society. Oh, I think it would happen. I just don't think it would be ubiquitous. And I, I think, I mean, in this, again, it comes back to, I, I, I do believe that it's more the, the power of positive thinking. Yeah, that might have an effect, but the kind of like oh, ma capital M magic we're talking that we, we often kind of dream about. That to me is still an act of practice, save unless you're one of the natural born magicians that we'll be talking about in a later chapter. Uh, I think that, the, and I, I think that that is something that still people will find their own personal relationship with that goes beyond whatever is being sold to them from a PR perspective. Sure. I, in terms specifically of science will science falling in line with mysticism rob it of its of its specialness of its spirituality will it will it lead to the mainstream just the will it lead to mainstream people just engaging with these things willy-nilly without respecting them of course it will for individual people and i think one of the biggest parts of becoming a happy person is starting to develop, and this is going to sound contradictory to a lot of people who, you know, with with the universal idea, conscious idea of like, well, we're all one big person, so one thing that harms, uh, if something harms one of us, it harms all of us. That's true to an extent, but you also, again, I think one of the things about becoming a happy productive, stable, and healthy person is developing kind of this glass wall of separation between yourself and other people's bullshit. Of starting to, of the mantra that I've been trying to cling to for many years, and this is how Tumblr did not become a toxic experience for me, is just going, let other people be wrong. Let other people be wrong. Let other people be wrong. It drives me so fucking crazy the way people in this country treat yoga it's it's not just something to relax your muscles after you drop your kid off of soccer it is at its root supposed to be a spiritual practice but also some people just need it to relax their muscles and you know what that doesn't stop it from being sacred 
to to Hindus and Buddhists. That doesn't that doesn't actually rob it of its power. It just means that there is a certain branch of people that are using it in a way that it was not originally intended. And sometimes that's cultural appropriation and it's bad. But other times, other times it's just people in a studio stretching and I don't get it and I don't think it's something that should work. But let other people be wrong. Their, their shit isn't my shit. And so if there are people out there in the world that, you know, if to like on the day that the cultural consciousness across the world shifts and everybody accepts that predicting the future is something we can do and some people engage with it in a way that we personally find shitty and reductive, sometimes people are going to be shitty and reductive. Like, you know, that whole thing about just like, well, Christianity is part of the Kabbalist tradition. Burr, 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 burr. I don't respect Jewish people. Burr, 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 burr. <laughs> I, if I... If it's, like, I... it's like an anti-Semitic Muppet. <laughs> That's what I consider that guy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it. I, I can't spend the rest of my life trying to make other people be correct. I'll have a new type of aneurysm and die. Like <sighs> it's, it's just let other people be wrong. And yes, it, again, this weirdly ties back into that idea we were talking about earlier of we're raised in an environment that makes us think that it's a zero sum game. And I think, and it's, I wonder if some of this, some of this tension that you're feeling Rory is coming from this, this deep seated fear that if other people in that, if too many other people engage with this wrong, it will kill the power inside it and you won't be able to reach it anymore. And the truth is, Dumb people being dumb people on TikTok is not going to it's not going to kill Apollo. It's not going to cut us off from Brahma. It's not going to stop Awen from flowing into us when we meditate. It just means they're not going to get the full benefit of what that practice is. You cannot kill spirituality just because some people are blessing grapes in a supermarket without understanding what that means. No, I get that. I don't I don't think that they are going to like take away from my practice because they can roll some dice or pull some runes and be able to to correctly tell the future or whatever. My fear out of it would be that the persecution of people who practice spirituality would be would go to extreme levels because there is no need to practice it according to mainstream the the mainstream ideology they're like well i don't need to practice this because i can be telepathic anyway even though by practicing you would become more in tune with yourself you'd become better uh you'd become a better person you'd become more potent and powerful right um so by feeding into the uh the con like feeding into con like uh the mainstream con the mainstream consciousness the idea that anybody and everybody has magic which they do i wholeheartedly agree with that that it takes away from the idea that you still should practice some kind of uh self-help some kind of betterment of yourself while maintaining these things 
And that would be my fear only because science wants to differ, differ itself away from religion so strongly and yet acts like a religion itself. And I, I understand that fear. I'm not, I'm not personally certain how likely that is, but for me, the, I, I don't know that it, I don't know that it's likely even, at, even at all. I, it's just a scenario that popped up into my, in my head when I was thinking about it. And so, but my, my answer for that is like, as long, as long as they're not, you know, hurling us off of cliffs, I, I, it remains the same of let other people be wrong. Yeah, but at what cost? Which is, which is why I said as long as they're not throwing us off cliffs. Right. Like, I mean, and again, going back to uh, something I was saying, I think fundamentally, as, even though I may not like it personally, if there was somebody who, say, they got their magical power from sacrificing puppies to our Dark Lord Beelzebub, I hate that. I want them to stop it. But that said, I can't there I have no reason to suspect that might not work for them. You know what I mean? Like it, I think that ultimately these abilities, uh magic, the spiritual it is a purely subjective experience to a degree. And because of that, there will be people who yes, they like you're saying, Jay, you got to let them be wrong. Uh but you have to understand that judgment fundamentally and comes from our own subjective view in their subjective view they're doing it correctly and so there is it's subjective to an extent but there's still there's thousands of years of history of people experiencing the same thing over and over again yes but it's not that subjective but yes but if they can experience those things by drinking bleach I, then, then they die. Well, okay, that was a bad example. But if if they're getting to the same result by different means, I I don't know what that would mean. Like I I think you, that you, you can get to the same if they're getting to the same results by different means. Those means being counteractive to literally everything in esoteric history and and history itself. Then we have a major problem. Yes, because that means that nothing that we've said in none of these experiments are even accurate because everything would be shifted. Yeah. So that would hopefully never come to fruition. Well, I would hope not. My, my, my point is, though, is that ultimately, because it is a subjective experience... It's, so, I don't think it's as subjective as you're saying. I See, I, I think that ultimately it is about... I mean, and I think this might just come down to a difference in how we view magic because I tend to think if magic exists, and I, I tend to think it does, then... It is ultimately an an expression of the interplay between our consciousness and the universal consciousness that would construct reality or at least construct the psychic realm within which the various eyes that we are exist. Correct. And I agree with that. And you can get there by any means. Yes. Right? Within reason. But if I kill somebody, I cannot get there, in my opinion. Because you are harming the universal consciousness by doing that. Yeah, I, and here's the thing: is like again, which means it's not as subjective. From my personal experience, here's the thing: though that is still also fundamentally tied in with. I have to say, my opinions. I agree with you, but I have to acknowledge that 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 my opinion comes from my subjective life experiences. Because let's say we go to the uh, the Aztecs. 
killing people for the sun god, that was a part of their religion. It was a fundamental part of how they interfaced with the divine. And they grew and changed as society grew and changed and realized that murder is bad. Like slavery is bad. Like all these things are bad. Yes, but I, what I'm saying is that doesn't mean they weren't having divine experiences through doing those horrible things. Maybe, but there's, I mean, I guess there's also a difference between murder and sacrifice. There is. There is technically a difference between murder and sacrifice, but I can't, I don't feel comfortable going into that specifically with the Aztecs because I'm trying to remember if the majority of Aztec sacrifices were willing or not, and I genuinely can't. Yeah, I mean, I have the uh, high school history version of that where it was, I think, captured warriors from enemy tribes or something like that. But I don't know that for sure. And we also don't know that they, whether or not they experienced anything. Well, we know that they had religious texts. They viewed it as a religious ceremony. Yes, but we don't know that there was any kind of actual anything that came from it. I mean, if you want to go to that far, we don't, we don't know that anyone's ever had a spiritual experience beyond what they've told us. No, that's not true, because we have evidence of some that we're going to talk about in the next chapter. Oh, okay. We, we have very few examples. We have a lot. I, I don't think there is as many as you're thinking. If you look on the scale of humanity. Of miracles being performed, of miraculous things happening, there's probably billions. Bro, the church itself alone, just the Catholic Church, has thousands and thousands of different Okay. records of miracles okay but just saying that because the aztecs didn't write down that they had miracles in no, relation to sacrifices I, I'm, I'm not saying i'm just saying that we that i okay i don't know okay yeah i i do not know we're, mo we're moving on we're done with this throughout all of history there have been reports of people doing miraculous things from jesus to your corner store witch the vast majority of scientific community and skeptics will write these things off as naivety, mass hallucinations, or fraud. Raiden, however, believes, at least in terms of some of the people that he's going to go over in this chapter, that that may not be the case. Born in Italy in 1603, we start with Joseph Dessa. He was born poor, in a world full of plague, war, and perpetual hunger. The Catholic Church was the ruling force, and they ruled with an iron fist known as the Inquisition. At age nine, Joseph fell sick from an infection that had gone gangrenous. He was crippled for five years, only escaping his unceasing pain through daydreams, reveries, and fantasies. He was operated on one day by a traveling hermit surgeon, whatever that means, and miraculously, he survived. But don't think this miracle went unpunished, no. Socially and academically, he was behind, and regardless of the reason for that, he was perceived as dim-witted. Joseph would often fall into trances where he would stand, mouth agape, entranced by the church music. And eventually, he would join the church, and after much struggle, was ordained by the age of 25. Word of his unique abilities soon spread to his peers in town, but it soon became clear that there were consequences for drawing his ire. Quote, a certain Count Don Cosmio Pinelli had an ongoing sexual liaison with the daughter of Martha Rodia. Joseph said that if the Count didn't desist from his amours, he would go blind. This turned out to be what happened, and Joseph bragged about his prediction, but later restored the man's sight, this time getting him to leave the girl alone and pay 
reparations to the family. Before long, nobody in Copertino dared enter the company of the friar unless their conscience was squeaky clean. Otherwise, they shrank in terror from the gaze of the black-bearded friar. Uh, as would I. As he grew older, his abilities grew stronger, building him a reputation as a prophet and miracle healer. He displayed feats of telepathy, precognition, power over animals and natural forces, and, of what he is most famous for, levitation. Naturally, the church had some issues with this. Living miracle workers drew the public's attention away from the church's authority. So, they moved him from town to town, trying to keep him out of the public eye. But, as you can imagine, this didn't work. Too many people, from common folk to nobles, clergy to royalty, wanted to see him. So the church did what they do, and they had the Inquisition investigate him and put him on trial. During the investigation, they asked him to give a mass, where he promptly levitated in front of the whole of the Inquisition. At the end of the trial, they told him that he just needed to stop levitating. But they didn't murder him. So that's great news for our boy Joe. <laughs> I mean, statistically, he got very lucky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that being said, his abilities refused to be caged, and during a second investigation from the Inquisition, he was placed on house arrest until he died. Joseph was then canonized over a century later by Pope Benedict XIV. The next gentleman Raiden talks about is Daniel Dunglass Hume. Born in Scotland in 1833, he was one of eight children and was a descendant of a Scottish Highland family said to have the second sight. Adopted at age nine by his aunt, he moved to Norwich, Connecticut. Like Joseph, he was not expected to survive his infancy, but like St. Joe, he did. When he started to perform, those that saw him were essentially labeled as insane while trying to recount what they saw. Skeptics, debunkers, everyone and anyone, including physicist Sir William Crookes, investigated Hume's claims and could find no evidence of fraud. His rise came hand-in-hand hand with the rising interest in spiritualism and physical mediumship, complete with the usual tappings of spirit wrappings, levitating tables, invisible spirits playing instruments, sitters being touched by spirits, and more, all of which were conducted in low-to-no-light settings. Hume would go on to travel the world performing seances for tons of people, including Queen Sophie of the Netherlands, and to appease some skeptics, even did some seances in full light, which is unheard of with most seances. And none of these people could find evidence of fraud. And the last gentleman that we will go over here is that of Ted Owens. Like our previous two, he grew up poor. He lived with his grandparents. And like many, he grew up in the 1930s, sometimes played psychic games like the Ouija board. Owens' talents, though, were more in the affecting weather and summoning UFOs department. He was described as angry, dark, and frustrated that the U.S. government didn't seek his help on anything. In 1976, Owens announced, quote, In the interest of science, I am going to give a demonstration of my Psi-Force abilities to the people who live in the San Francisco area 100 miles in circumference, using San Francisco as the bull's eye of my target. As of today, and daily for the following 90 days, I will telepath to living entities in another dimension for them to appear in the above target area so that they may be seen by police, scientists, and other responsible observers who are qualified to report the sightings. Also for them to cause electromagnetic and magnetic anomalies 
within the above described area. It is my intent to produce not one, but at least three major UFO sightings, as described above, within the above named time period, to be reported in the newspapers in order for the experiment to be a valid one. And in addition to this, he predicted that San Francisco would suffer from blackouts and that there would be sightings of alien life forms. Two and a half weeks later, a massive windstorm with winds going 60 to 70 miles per hour caused blackouts, intense damage, and power outages. On December 8th, the best documented UFO sighting in the Bay Area occurred. A circular white object was seen and videotaped by an airplane pilot and many witnesses on the ground. A few days before the February 7th deadline, a second major UFO sighting occurred in the area. A local resident even reported being abducted, and witnesses claimed to have seen life forms. So, just like predicted, all of these things came to pass. So, what is it about these three? These three individuals were rare, but not unique. Raiden suspects that psi abilities exist on a curve with what he calls Merlin-class magicians, like these three at one far end. If all of humanity is on that curve, he estimates there are as many as 7,000 of them in the early 21st century, and no doubt many more now. Quote, Who are they? What are they up to? Are these the invisible adepts that Blavatsky and others insisted were real? There are many tales of shamans, gurus, and other adepts who have displayed remarkable abilities. How do we even begin to understand them? And with that, we'll move into our fourth discussion question. As mentioned in the summary, there were some similarities between the three that were mentioned here. And there are, I'm sure, a lot more similarities if we dug in deeper. Let's speculate a little bit. If everyone in the world is on the size spectrum, what is it about these three that let them have such potent powers? Is it genetics? Is it how they were raised? Is it random chance? And do you think there is some larger purpose to the scale? Like Raiden suggests, maybe are these the invisible masters that Blavatsky talks about? Um... So right off the bat, I'm going to err on the side of those probably aren't the hidden masters or invisible masters or whatever we like to term them, just because I always thought of those people um, to fall back on World of Darkness terms like I always seem to. I, I always thought of those people as kind of like Archmage of like Archmasters hmm. in Mage of it's like they definitely exist and they were people at one point, but they've they can't stay here anymore. Um, kind of like they've reached enlightenment. Yeah, rainbow, yeah. Soul, rainbow souls. Yeah, rainbow. Yeah, rainbow souls. They're they Maybe they haven't quite moved on yet. Maybe they're still here helping us. And well, if they're the hidden masters, they are still here helping us and guiding us. But they can't. They can't have day jobs at Seven Eleven. All right. That 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 master's degree they were working on. That's that's donezo. They've got to go. They've got to go live in a fucking mountain that exists halfway outside of time. Like that is, it's just once you understand this world to that extent, I feel like you can't be a part of it anymore. Um, so I don't, I don't think Ted Owens is one of the hidden masters. Um, in terms of what makes them so strong in Psy, it's probably a healthy dose of random chance combined with millions of other tiny factors. Like to me, the first thing I thought of if everyone exists on the size spectrum, I was thinking about, you know, 
my status as a super taster of it's like that wasn't that's just because I was literally born with more taste buds than most other people have. And so maybe people maybe people who are especially strong in psi sometimes just have a very unique brain structure that just makes it so that whatever that impulse is flows faster and brighter and fires more often. Um, and that's not to say that cultivating it doesn't have a purpose. I think it I think with that, that might be the difference between someone being naturally born with perfect pitch and someone spending years intensely training to learn how to sing. Like there there are probably just some people who are naturally gifted. There are probably some people who were raised with parents that were very open to things like this and kind of gently encouraged and cultivated that in them. And there's probably some people that were born with something that we wouldn't consider quote unquote natural talent at all, but they fought and they they fought and they practiced and they struggled and they tried and they improved. So I I don't I definitely don't think it's one thing that makes someone naturally that makes someone very strong in that. I think some people are probably naturally born to it and other people have to practice it really really hard and when it comes to is there a greater purpose to this that's entirely possible but I feel like if I try to suss out the universal consciousness the the if I try to suss out the motives of the universal conscious I am once again going to have a new type of aneurysm and die I uh, it's 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 just I can't I can't explain calculus to my dog I don't think I can grasp the motives of the universal conscious. It, it reminds me of uh, like serial killers, right? It, it, the whole idea of it being multiple factors that all add up to create a Merlin class wizard, very similar to uh, the serial killer soup, uh, you know, where, yes, many serial killers were abused at a young age. Yes, many had traumatic brain injuries. Yes, many tortured animals. But for each of these uh, seemingly ubiquitous rules, there are exceptions. And for each of those rules, there are people who hit them who never kill a soul. Um, it's a combination of factors. And I think I agree with you on that. I, I do think that there is a chance that there is something genetic about it. And that's based entirely off of, I mean, a trope. How often have you uh, like heard people talking about, and in fiction or in real life, uh, well, you know, your granny had the sight, so maybe you do too, or something like that. There is this, uh, there are ideas of these kind of psychic dynasties that form where the parents and the children both seem to have the sight, or maybe it skips a generation. Uh, and I, I could see that as playing a factor, but I don't, I don't think it's the whole picture. Um, that said, if I wanted to propose an alternative I, I, a possible alternative could be, uh, let's look at reincarnation. If the model is true that we reincarnate and the whole purpose is to grow our souls and learn, that those individuals are just people who are further along in the lesson plan than the rest of us. They've lived more lives. They've come back more times. They are innately on some deep soul level, uh, more knowledgeable and more, I, I guess, whole. The only issue I have there is if we look at some of these individuals in their life, I mean, they, they weren't 100% great people all the time. Uh, 
Ted Owens, I mean, he, in order to prove his power, called down a storm which caused damages to a city. Like, while that is wonderfully uh, cool, I was, I, I did have the thought of, okay, well, what does that look like for the poor people on the ground or the people who now have to spend their weekend repairing down power lines and things like that, even if no one got hurt? Um, it didn't seem like a very enlightened action. Now, that said, it could just be that in my unenlightened rube state, I don't see the bigger picture. Uh, and it could be that 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 is simply not what's happening. But uh, that is the only other idea I've come on that might help explain why some of these people exist outside of they much like Bigfoot or Mothman or alien visitations like we were talking about earlier. They are <clears throat> here to remind us that these things exist, that, hey, we're going to give this guy extra psychic powers kind of as a way of hinting at humanity that, hey, this is on the table if you're willing to work towards it. I think it's mostly random, but I think the odds of that randomness are increased by certain factors. That those factors can be genetics, can be your own personal practice, can be literally just ra random happenstance that you just l happen to be what the Universal program decided to put 100% on that day. Because like the trope that you mentioned, it's your grandmother had it, so maybe you did. And I think maybe the second that they say that, they've manifested the odds to be a little bit more in your favor that that is true. Like we were talking about with uh, Joshua Kutchin, the whole idea of well, there are certain beliefs about area that has quartz in the ground. There are certain beliefs about graveyards, and there are certain beliefs about electromagnetic zones. And when all three are leveled up together, well, then maybe you get a Bigfoot. It's also just the basic idea of, of, of witchcraft. If you put something out there, you're giving the odds, uh, the, essentially you're creating the odds a little bit more in your favor by putting something out in the universe. So by saying something, even with a little bit of intention behind it, your odds go up. Maybe it's only 0.01% that day, but now it's living rent-free in the back of your subconscious, and maybe that grows it over and over again until it either happens or it doesn't, depending you know, on multiple other circumstances. Because um, as proven by some of the, uh, the scientific experiments that were done with Psy, belief matters. I can hand you blessed tea, but if you don't believe it's blessed, I ain't going to do shit. You know, uh, so I think that I think all of these factors matter, but ultimately, I think it's random. Yeah. I Just, mean, I mean, as, as kind of shitty as that is, <laughs> as, as somebody who really wants to be like a powerful, uh, you know, powerful within magic, I think it's completely random. That being said, I think you can increase your odds of that happening by committing yourself to this, doing it, striving harder, which is essentially practice, right? But you could practice your whole life and never achieve it, which sucks. Yeah. But it's true. Yep. I mean, well, and, and I, it is unfair, but I mean, that is, that's overwhelmingly what the world has told us, is that right. you're going to be born with certain advantages, and it's up to you how you use them, but you will not have them all. And that, yeah. that's just how it is. No one gets to be a mid-max character. Yep. You have to take flaws on your character sheet. Right. No, and uh, maybe the fact that the three examples that were used here, the fact that they were all poor and, and you know, downtrodden in their respected, respected societies, whatever, 
is kind of what gave him that leg up to be the 95% at start, you know, or 100% at start, whatever it might be. They, they they had to pick some dump stats so that they could right. have magic up at a high level. Right. No, yeah, they they dropped their, their you know, for like uh, St. Joe, his stamina was uh, uh, at yeah. the beginning, you know. <laughs> uh, there is an idea in Mormonism that uh, before you were born on Earth, you select certain challenges in order to test your faith and kind of increase the reward that you will reap when you once again enter into God's kingdom. Well, it's kind of like the idea that we've talked about. I'm pretty sure you're talking about the show. I know we've talked about it outside of the show. Um, the idea of like uh, essentially like our our character, our us, yeah, where we've decided what pat like what trials that we go through, mm-hmm. you know, in this in this lifetime. And I'm pretty sure we're talking about the show because I'm pretty sure I've mentioned how I'd, we've all mentioned I would want to beat ourselves up, yeah, for 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 choosing some of the decisions that we've had to go through. Yes, yeah, but. I'm coming for that fat boy. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, I also like uh, for the last part of the question: Are these the invisible masters? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think so because I I think the invisible masters, specifically from Blavatsky, I think the idea that we talked about in Occult America is where I'm sitting, and I think it's the text for her. I think the book and the journey is the invisible masters, not any actual person. Yeah, and I, I like that view of it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, there's a part of me that I can't deny that thirsts for them to be real, for there to be this shadowy cabal of super powerful mystics who are secretly sitting behind, the, sitting behind the powers that be of our world and controlling everything and trying to safeguard humanity from existential threats we can't even imagine. Because that's awesome. Because yeah. that's a great comic book. Because that's something I'd read and enjoy and buy the lunchbox of. But I can't. I, but I think you're right. I think it is probably a, something a bit more esoteric than that. It is. Well, and again, we go back to if the world is all ideas, if it's all consciousness, then the the I, an idea is a very real thing. Mm-hmm. And who's to say? As weird as this sounds, who's to say an idea can't have an intention of its own? And uh, you're 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 touching on a lot of what we're about to get into in the next section. So I think that's a good transition point for us to move into section five. I helped. You always help, Nick. Over the last century of research and experiments, there are six conclusions that can be drawn from the psychic properties displayed. Number one, that we have the capacity to gain information unbound by the everyday limitations of space or time and without the use of the ordinary senses. Number two, psi capacities are widely distributed amongst the general population. Extreme levels of psi talent are rare, but laboratory tests indicate that most people have some discernible ability, whether they're aware of it or not. Number three, these effects arise from the unconscious. Psi abilities can be observed during conscious awareness but more reliable effects can be detected below the level of awareness via physiological measurements and other techniques used to study implicit and unconscious responses. Number four, psi effects are stronger during non-ordinary states of consciousness, such as during meditation, while dreaming, or while under the influence of psychedelic compounds. Number five, we have the capacity to mentally influence the physical world probably not through application of the four known physical forces, 
but perhaps through something as yet unidentified. And number six, we can gain information from sources purported to be non-physical entities. And what might be the biggest struggle of all of this is that it is all seemingly rooted in consciousness, and scientifically, we have no fucking clue what consciousness even is yet. Raiden, however, sees signs that there is a major shift in the Western scientific worldview, which could, as of yet, pave the way to greater discoveries. And this worldview rests on three key assumptions. Realism, that the physical world consists of objects with real properties that exist independent of observation. Locality, that objects are separate from each other and non-local interactions between objects are impossible. And causality, time is a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics. It is impossible to get information from the future or reverse time. These three elements then indicate four key pillars in the worldview. Mechanism, that everything can be understood like the moving gears of a clock, cause and effect. Physicalism, everything that exists can be described by properties in normal space and time and can be proven through logic and mathematics or demonstrable experimental facts. Materialism, everything including mind and consciousness is made up of matter and energy. There is no non-physical, no spiritual, and no immaterial. And reductionism. Everything is made up of a hierarchy of ever smaller objects with subatomic particles at the bottom. These assumptions propelled our species in just a few hundred years to the modern technology and lifestyles that we enjoy today and therefore should not just be thrown away, even if they are flawed. However, what we should question is if the worldview encompasses all that is, or if it creates blinders that leave us ignorant of other equally important aspects of reality. The perennial philosophy is a common idea in esoteric circles that posits that there is a single, underlying mystical cosmology from which our diverse religious traditions have arisen. And we do see three key ideas pop up over and over in most esoteric traditions that consciousness is fundamental, that everything is interconnected, and there is only one consciousness. And there have been many philosophers that have played on these ideas over time, some even going so far as to posit the existence of a single substance that makes up all things. Quote, If we bite into a lemon, we know what it tastes like. But if we attempt to trace how we know, based on the signals that travel to the brain, from electrochemical sensors to the tongue, Nowhere do we find what the subjective taste of a lemon is actually like. That's because the experience we're seeking is inside the brain-body machinery in a way that cannot be observed from the outside. Science is exceptionally adept at studying features of the external world, but so far it has just barely scratched the surface at developing ways to study the inner world. Science, even in its etymology, means to know or distinguish by separating. Essentially, that to understand something, we must take it apart and understand its parts. But this only works for objects that can be cleanly separated and don't include possibilities, like what is seen at quantum scale. Awareness, or consciousness, cannot be taken apart. And this issue has sparked a revival of interest in idealism, a philosophical notion that indicates that reality is fundamental of the mind. This idea is related to panpsychism, 
which posits that, that all of matter is imbued inherently with a property of sentience, or the idea of neutral monism that has also been taking hold, that mind and matter are complementary aspects of the same fundamental stuff. In the 2014 book called Why Materialism is Baloney, computer scientist Bernardo Kastrup argues that the neuroscientific assumption that the physical brain gives rise to the subjective experience is laughable. He cites a 2007 article in Nature that showed that the assumption that there is an independent reality, independent of observation, realism, is not compatible with quantum theory or experimental results. Quote, we believe that our results lend strong support to the view that any future extension of quantum theory that is in agreement with experience must abandon certain features of realistic descriptions. Meaning, basically, that reality must depend on observation. But who is then doing the observation, or who is doing the observing? In a 2005 article by John Hopkins University physicist Richard Henry, Henry says, quote, Physicists shy away from the truth because the truth is so alien to everyday physics. A common way to evade the mental universe is to invoke decoherence, the notion that the physical environment is sufficient to create reality, independent of the human mind. Yet the idea that any irreversible act of amplification is necessary to collapse the wave function is known to be wrong. The universe is entirely mental. Kastrup further posits that if reality is mental, the most simple hypothesis is that there is but one mind, one fundamental medium through which all of existence unfolds. Otherwise, the mind would have had to naturally arisen countless times over and over throughout history. So if we assume that the esoteric traditions are correct and that personal consciousness and universal consciousness are made up of the same stuff, then personal consciousness may be thought of not as a tiny part of the universal consciousness that has been broken off and is separated, but rather as the tip of a very large consciousness iceberg. Divination magic works because universal consciousness would be more fundamental than space and time. And because of that, personal consciousness can also perceive the past, present, and future. This occurs when the personal consciousness identifies itself with the universal consciousness, like in meditation or gnosis. However, as universal consciousness is inconceivably large, there are limits on what personal consciousness can perceive. I don't think I've ever said the word consciousness this much in my life. Every time you say it, I saw your eyebrows go up another fraction of an inch. Because I didn't want to do the uppercase, lowercase c thing because I didn't do it at the beginning when I got to this part, I just kept writing personal and universal consciousness. So here we are. <laughs> Fun word to say. Yeah. Hard, weirdly hard word to spell repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. Conscience, conscience and con... I hate it. I can't even say it out loud anymore. Conscience and consciousness? Yeah. Uh, God, I'm so dyslexic. Now write subconscious and don't fuck it up the first time. No. no. I will every time. The first time, every time. <laughs> Force of will works because the physical world is an extension of the personal consciousness. However, personal consciousness is limited due to reality inertia, a.k.a. the self is smaller than the whole 
so it's hard for the little part to have massive changes on the bigger part. Personal intention can be thought of as the electrical circuit to the battery. The circuit does nothing without the power. And theurgy works because, quote, the human physical form is one of a potentially infinite number of ways that consciousness can be embodied. There is no reason for the body that hosts personal consciousness to necessarily be physical, at least not in the way that we currently understand physicality. And esotericists and occultists have, as mentioned before, thought that consciousness is fundamental, and more and more scientists are coming around to this idea. Some are not, of course, and this is shown in seven ways of thinking about consciousness that Raiden has laid out for us. Reductive materialism, which is the matter organizes itself in a way to eventually produce consciousness. Subjective experience is nothing but recursive loops in the brain, a cold, magicless mechanical universe. Reductive materialism without consciousness. Matter organizes itself to produce the illusion of consciousness. Everyone is a zombie, following pre-coded behaviors. Magic in this worldview is also impossible. Soft idealism. Consciousness is primary, but matter emerges from it, as do the brain-based activities of cognition and perception. Magic here is possible. Hard idealism. Consciousness is primary, and matter exists only as an appearance within consciousness. The world is fundamentally built of pure awareness, not matter and energy. Magic here would be obvious. Straight-up dualism. Consciousness and matter both exist, and neither arise from the other. They are separate, primitive substances which together form reality. Here, magic is possible. Wishy-washy monoism. Consciousness and matter are two different perspectives of the same reality, like two sides of a coin. Magic here is possible. And then cynical nihilism. Neither consciousness nor matter exists, and everything is but a pointless illusion. Finally, a philosophy that speaks to me. <laughs> Quote, This is the refuge of suicidal philosophers, nihilistic skeptics, and a majority of college sophomores. I'd like to take my last statement back, please. N no magic for you. Fuck! <laughs> what is interesting about this is, in the times past, we would expect only philosophers to posit these versions of idealism or even talk openly about the emerging consciousnessnessnessnessness. <laughs> you know what we mean, listeners. I think we've reached the brain damage stage of the of this show. The yep. good news is we're almost done. Yep. Now, we are seeing an uptick of mainstream scientists and scholars talking about these ideas. Quote, some suggest that reality literally is information, like a cosmic conscious hologram. Others talk about reality as a mathematical or supercomputer-based simulation. You know, like the Matrix. We see this even with math, which so many claim to be infallible. One idea that's been posited in a response to an essay contest is that reality is actually not completely independent of observation essentially saying that mathematics itself has a life of its own, that mathematics is the universe. And many thinkers, such as Sir Roger Penrose, have long noted how strange it is that the natural world operates by such precise mathematics, so much so that we often prove something is real mathematically, such as black holes, 
long before we find them in physical reality. Penrose suggested that this accuracy was not the result of a new theory being created to explain mass amounts of data, but rather that the extra precision was seen only after the theory had been produced, aka we live in a symbolic reality. So if magic is real, like Raiden wants us to believe, why can't I then use it to change my reality? And why can't we use it to end all social ills? Well, according to Raiden, we can kind of. Magic, for the most part, is frail and subtle. Not everyone is going to be St. Joe the Levitating Preacher Man. And on top of that, you have to fight against reality inertia, a potential lack of talent of your own, and then your own unconscious thoughts getting in the way. So, if there is all the evidence, why is the existence of Psy still so controversial? Because, as Raiden puts it, people believe what they want to believe. And because Psy implies magic, it finds enemies both in dogmatic skeptics and religious fundamentalists who see such things as inherently evil. And for those that practice magic, they are striving for enlightenment, or, for some, power. Either path is possible, and magic can be used for power, but it's more than that. It can be used to heal, to survive, and to reduce suffering. It is limitless, so we must be careful with how we use it. Quote, Many scientific and scholarly disciplines are slowly coming around to the idea that consciousness is far more important than previously imagined. The shift of opinion combined with the idea that reality is a form of information provides a renewed appreciation of ancient esoteric legends about magic. If we can get past the supernatural connotations, the religious fears and prohibitions, and the occult baggage, then through the scientific study of magic we have the potential to make rapid progress in gaining a better understanding of who and what we are. If we can't escape our past, then we may be running headlong into extinction. Magic is real. Let's deal with it. And with that, we're going to move into our final discussion question. So let's go back for a second to what Bernardo Castrop theorized, because it weirdly caught me off guard. So assuming this is true, that reality depends on observation, who or what do you think is doing this observation? Is it the universal consciousness? Is it aliens? Is it us? What do you think? Um, well, that's a tough question. Uh, I, I guess going to the idea of, okay, if con consciousness is fundamental, returning to that, then it's everything, right? And if everything is made of consciousness, then we enter, well, are we in a pantheistic reality in which every object has consciousness? It just not be, may not be a form of consciousness that we recognize, right? Right, that we can recognize or understand, right. Now, if that's true, then reality is being observed by the universal unconsciousness, but everything that exists within it are akin to its eyes. In that way, everything that is, was, or will be is observing itself and in doing so creating a consensus reality that we share. At least that would be how I would uh, thread that particular needle. Because ultimately, again, we go back to uh, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, or it uh, does it make a sound? The answer would be yes, because the tree heard it. Right. Uh, the tree is aware of its own falling. Maybe it's screaming. Also the ground and the leaves and the other trees. Right. I, I think... The I think that is actually probably 
the simplest way of of negotiating a materialist universe in a consciousness-based paradigm mm-hmm. in that yes there is a consensus reality there is an objective reality but that objective reality is an active construct of everything within it does that make sense yeah no it it makes sense it's it's along the same lines of how i was thinking about this question too yeah so i i think uh the the observer is us and by when i say us i don't just mean humans or even living things it is the whole things that are are the observers the one thing and the one mind or whatever you know oh god go back to go back to the esotericists the journey upward begins by going inward right uh the journey and ultimately all you're doing in a lot of the western esoteric traditions is finding the road between uh, lowercase c consciousness and upper to uppercase c consciousness. And that road takes you into the self, and then going into the self, you enter the larger universe. Right. And that, if those experiences are what the people who had them say they are, then that is the only conclusion you could draw, ultimately. I mean, yeah. Yeah. My thinking is honestly largely along the same lines is that the is that the observer is i i wouldn't go so far yeah i i think the observer would kind of be the collectively like everything that's sapient like everything that is kind of at least to some degree aware of its own consciousness probably qualifies as the observer um the other thing that i was thinking is and this is not necessarily something I I believe. This is just a th- a line of thought that I've been enter that I'm entertaining. Is if our universe is some sort of simulation, or and I'm even thinking of it not just being like a for fun video game. If we are a reality contained inside of a larger one, that for some reason this is where we go to be tested and grow and develop and change. It's entirely possible that the observer that creates the universe is, you know, the real version of ourselves, whatever actual society that we come from that created this simulation in order to, again, I mentioned that thing of extreme therapy after extreme therapy. Maybe everyone alive in this universe is a fucking mental patient and this is just living a life or a thousand lifetimes here is just the way that you wake up and you don't have PTSD anymore wherever we came from. Um, and so that so it's possible that the observation is is the mods or whoever's or the therapists that are maintaining this therapeutic simulation, which might explain why it seems like our force of will influences the reality around us of it's just like, okay, let's check let's check in on Jay. What's Jay currently believing and pursuing? Okay. Are we seeing Jay trend upward by engaging with that belief? We are. Okay. Modify the simulation for Jay specifically. This is working. We found something that's working. Lean into it. You know, well, I don't think this is a, at least I hope this isn't a reflection of real reality. You did just introduce an existentially terrifying idea into my head. What if, yeah, like we were saying, yes, there is outside of space and time a true self. Uh, and we come here to learn, and when we go back, we kind of merge back into that true self with whatever lessons we brought. But 
what if you're right and this is akin to a hospital? This reality is uh, where we're being treated. But what if, you know, and we are part of that self. But what if specifically we are mental illness? We are the embodiment of the higher self's insanity sent down here to resolve itself to go uh, so that hopefully it can cure the whole. I mean, in a way, is that, that is kind of exactly yeah, what I know, it, we are. Because uh, we are, I mean, if the goal, if the goal is enlightenment, whatever that might be for, 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 for you, but I mean, theoretically, enlightenment in the general sense is striving to become one with your, your personal conscious being one with the universal conscious, uppercase C, lowercase C, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. If that is the goal, then in order for us to complete that goal, we have to not, I don't want to say overcome our mental illnesses because some of them are unovercomable, but we have to find a way to have peace with all of this while maintaining a, 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 or while bettering ourselves in society, right? So we have to almost like therapize ourselves. So I, I don't have anxiety. I am anxiety. That's actually not a bad way of looking at it. Oh, well, I'm going to be awake. Because you're not, because like, even in therapy, you don't say, you know, I, I, the, the goal is never to overcome my depression and my anxiety. The goal is to be able to like live with it, like live with it, understand it and know how I can like not let myself sink low into those lows when they inevitably happen or know how to pull myself out of those lows when they inevitably happen. You know, uh, curing isn't really in the game here all the time. And as for the concern about won't that mean we disappear, I have to fall back on my on my pigeon drugstore Hinduism of it's just like that fear of what if I vanish, that's that's one of the chains keeping you locked down to the cycle because... Right. Because, again, that idea of separation is in itself an illusion. And I'm also, if anyone in the audience uh, watches Doom Patrol on HBO, I'm kind of thinking, I'm kind of thinking of the response Jane's alters had to the idea of Kay, the central personality healing and them being integrated back into the personality of they all started freaking out of that means I'm going to disappear. And it's like, no. It doesn't mean you're going to disappear. You're not going to be alone anymore. Right. Because DID, dissociative identity disorder, is not 14 people locked inside a head together. It is one person that extreme trauma has chopped into 14 pieces. And right. I, I don't, I feel like in many ways that's a great way to explain the illusion of, of being a person in, trapped in Maya in Buddhist and Hindu traditions of it's like you are not one single person that is going to disappear upon reaching enlightenment. You are one fragment of something larger that you will be joining again. Yes, exactly. You are not going to disappear. You're you're going home and you're still going to be you. You're not you're not losing anything. You're getting the rest of you back. Right. You're not losing anything. You're gaining everything. You know it to return to a metaphor we've used on this show, uh, again, I return to thinking about consciousness or all of reality as a pane of glass that someone has hit with a hammer and you have that giant spider web crack. Right. That's, 
kind of like Jay was saying, it's a cosmic case of DID. And the whole point is to fix the goddamn window. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I... It is fascinating to think, well, what happens if we succeed? Um, but I don't think that that is something my puny human brain can can even begin to understand. I'm I'm not even sure we're meant to understand it at this level. No, no. I I think you could only understand what that would be like once the window is fixed. Right, exactly. And the window is only going to be fixed in your own in in your own mind or in your own way. I mean, it truly until literally everybody, right? It would never be fully fixed in quotations. But for you, once you achieve your form of enlightenment, whether that be you know, nirvana or um, whatever, you know, whatever, many different faiths have their own version of, until you, re like, you'll heal the one portion of that when you you know, be reach that state, whatever it might be. But that's really all you can ever uh, hope to accomplish. Thinking larger than that is just going to explode your brain. Well, it you know, it's interesting. Uh, thinking about thinking about aliens uh, and UFO experiences, uh, we often hear. I mean, not not all the time, not always, but we often hear uh, people experience saying, "Well, they 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 claimed that they loved me. They claimed that uh, you know that they knew me." And what if Anomalous entities, these outside entities, they are uh, effectively representations of the pieces of self that have already rejoined together. And they're trying to break, get the band back together. They're trying to finish fixing the window by leading other fragments into healing enough to join the whole. Right. So they're, kind of, they're attempting to be a, like a guiding hand, uh, like almost like the, uh, the, 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 uh, the arc masters from mage reaching out from the ether to help us every now and again, you know? Yeah. Again, I have to return to the fact that whoever wrote the, the tabletop role-playing game, mage, the awakening, they knew too much. They knew they, they had done, they had to have done incredibly in-depth research into Western esotericism because now looking back on that game, Holy crap, there's so much packed in there. Oh, God, yeah. There's a reason our, our ST was so enthusiastic about the idea of me coming in as a Hindu mage. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the fact that he is an occult wizard himself. Yes, yes. he is. We got to get him on the show. Yeah, we do. Anywho, I, I, think, I think that's it. I think it is, too. I, I think that completes the... Um, the the five discussion questions for real magic by Dean Raiden. Good good game, team. Let's get waffles and get shit faced. But first, the about the author. Oh, right. Yes. I'm not done working. Nope, not yet. <laughs> not quite. All right. Dr. Dean Raiden was born February 29th, 1952. As a child, he held a deep fascination with fairy tales, mythology, folklore, philosophy, and science fiction. His career path began as a concert violinist, which shifted when he earned his degree in electrical engineering with an honors in physics from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He then earned a master's in sciences in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. From there, he worked at various labs, including Bell Laboratories, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, University of Nevada, and SRI International. He then joined and became chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. 
He also continued to work as an associated professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He was elected president of the Parapsychological Association in 1988, 1993, 1998, and 2005. He has authored and co-authored hundreds of scientific, technical, and popular articles, as well as individual chapters of, of several books and many other books of his own. These include Entangled Minds, Extrasensory Experiences in Quantum Reality in 2009, The Conscious Universe, Scientific Truth of Psychic Phenomenon in 2010, Psychic Exploration, A Challenge for Science, Understanding Nature and the Power of Consciousness, 2011, Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities, 2013, and The Mathematics of Reincarnation, The Matrix of Consciousness, in 2021. His articles have appeared in top academic journals, including Foundations of Physics, Psychological Bulletin, and The Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. He has appeared in literally hundreds of television shows, podcasts, radio programs, and documentaries, including, just to name a few, The Unexplained, Horizon, I Am, Life, Death, Reincarnation, Third Eye Spies, Among Us, Superpower, Ignite Your Intuitive Intelligence, and far too many to name. He has presented at universities around the world, including institutions such as Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, and Cambridge. And he has presented at major companies such as Google, Johnson & Johnson, and for governmental organizations, including the U.S. Navy, DARPA, and the National Academy of Sciences. In 2017, he was named one of the 100 most inspiring people in the world by German magazine Um. He continues to work at the Institute for Noetic Sciences, continuing his 20-plus years-long research into psi and related phenomenon. And, like most in the parapsychological field, his wiki page has been thoroughly vandalized by people who, according to Mitch Horowitz, style themselves as anti-parapsychology gorillas. As such, he advises people to read his bio from his website, where he also links to a third-party bio. And in describing himself on his website, DeanRadin.com, he writes, quote, I am not a therapist, nor am I a psychic or a paranormal investigator. I am a scientist who studies exceptional experiences and abilities commonly called psychic. If you are disturbed by these experiences, I recommend that you contact a qualified clinical psychologist or psychiatrist knowledgeable about these experiences. I fucking love Dean Radin. And is one more note, which is very, very exciting. <laughs> Dean Radin is going to be adding Noctivigant to the hundreds of podcasts he's appeared in. Ah! He's going to be joining us for the next edition of Midnight Chats, and I am beyond thrilled. I'm baffled. I'm terrified. I, I, to be honest, I'm baffled when anyone comes on our show, but I'm so happy they do, and I'm yeah. so happy they seem to have a good time. No, no, me too. Like, no doubt, uh, 100% like thrilled, obviously, that he's going to be coming on to talk about, hopefully, magic with us, but uh, uh, baffled. Like, there's a part of me, even though I feel like it would also be deeply offensive to, like, I, I this interview can only be conducted at a lab. We need to get a lab backdrop, all of us wearing white coats. <laughs> the only way this is going to be taken, we're going to be taken seriously. Or we can just be a bunch of weirdos who are fans of his book. Yeah, I think that's probably the better approach. Yeah, let's do that one. Rather than a massive uh, illusion campaign. Yeah, just I, I feel like lying to the man is not a great start. Okay. You, Rory and me are in our normal backdrop and we both look tired and embarrassed. And then there's Nick doing the whole bit on a third camera. And every time we make eye contact with Raiden on the screen, we're just about like, I'm so 
<laughs> I, I am actively just mixing random chemicals as we talk. Halfway through, I can no longer ask questions because I fucking blow myself up. And just, now we're fucked. No, just, just, just keep going. Just keep going. He has a fucking healing factor. Just keep going. I do not have a healing factor. You do now because I said so and I did a spell and don't worry about it. I spent, I spent three weeks in a hospital and nine months in physical therapy proving I don't have a healing factor. And yet the odds were against chance that you would do any of the things that you're doing now. Running a podcast? You can walk, How about walking? Oh, right. Moving. You can yeah. breathe without a machine. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's fair. And I, uh, from what I've heard, that was, uh, that was touch and go for a minute. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's a significant chance I could have died. Let, let's move into housekeeping. housekeeping. Housekeeping! So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening on. And if it is Spotify or Apple, leave us a review. Five stars preferred, but not required. Uh, but preferred, definitely. If, if you want to reach out to us, you can do that you know, via email. If you want to yell at us or give us a book request or something, noctivingitpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at noctivingitpod. And I am at Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. And I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a whole heap of other social medias, uh, including an Instagram, noctivingit underscore podcast. A Reddit account, Noctivigant Podcast. And a Tumblr account, Noctivigant Podcast. And uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, cause they don't know about our secret account on evil Twitter. No, no, we don't talk about evil Twitter, not here. Sorry. I, ha I don't have an account on evil Twitter. Have you guys been holding out? No, you have one. Oh, does Nightnick, is Nightnick the one that posts there? Night Nick. Yeah, that's what we'll call him. The self that is only around when I'm sleepwalking and committing all of those murders. He keeps hitting me with random objects around the house, and he's, I've asked him to stop. He's trying to murder you. I've noticed. All <laughs> uh, right. But I think that's it. Right? Anything else? Final thoughts? I like the book. Go and buy it. Yeah, it was great. Buy it. It was it was a it was a fantastic book. Um honestly. We were talking about using this book to kind of start people off who are resistant to the idea of of psi. I think uh, real magic first, twin telepathy, fringology. Yeah, or actually, I might go fringology, real magic, twin telepathy, just because fringology is a good intro to all of it. Actually, yeah, that's a good. And point. then uh, real magic is like a deep dive into psi. Twin telepathy is a deep, deep dive into telepathy. Mm-hmm. Which isn't covered heavily or really at all in this book. And yeah, because so. it was one of the Sigma Six uh, experiments. Six yep. Sigma. Six Sigma. And uh, again, so many of the people man mentioned casually for a single paragraph in Raiden's book here get lengthy descriptions mm -hmm. and histories done in twin telepathy. Yep. All right. But I guess I'll lead us out of here then. Please do. So, good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. Do it. I no. feel like I have to at this point. Just do it. Stop Stop listening to them. Do it! If you get lost, at least try to stay in sight of the signposts so that you can find your way back. We only find new things when we get lost. I mean, that's fair. Fuck, that's fair. <laughs>
Magic is real. And all of those scientific haters out there are just going to have to deal with it. And that's just it. That's the end of it. Full stop. Magic is real.